Thomas and Frederick. With Thomas and Frederick. With Thomas and Frederick. Welcome to State of the Franchise, the podcast that talks about franchises of all shapes, sizes, backgrounds, genres, and types. I am one of your hosts, Tom Stedler, here with the, well, I was going to say the Lord of the Rings, but that <laughs> <laughs> kind of already ruins the bit. We are off. We'll, we'll, call, we'll call him the, the Great Grey Wizard of the Eastern Wisconsin Shores, <laughs> the Dakin. <laughs> You shall not pass. <laughs> Damn it! No. <laughs> oh, I'm. It's good to be here, Tom. I'm excited to talk to you again. To go on another adventure. We're gonna go there and back again, Fred. I believe is the mm-hmm. is the proper uh, context mm-hmm. <laughs> reference for this. So, and I haven't been shaving my feet. Oh, I was just gonna say, you know, you had some pretty poppet feet, but I thought <laughs> maybe they were those fake prosthetic ones that they wear in the movies. No, this is this is years of the making. I can't grow a beard, but. I've got I've got feet beards. Mm, maybe that's just the the Tolkien in you. <laughs> and of course, we're gonna be talking about Tolkien. We're doing Tolkien talk. But mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, this week, as we're following up from, I guess, a couple different episodes, Fred, because it was a couple of years ago we actually did our Lord of the Rings episode, and then just recently, and in terms of the context of when you'd be listening to this podcast, if you're listening episodically, we also did a movie or uh, episode on Rankin Bass movies where we did talk about the Hobbit, uh, Rankin Bass movie. But Fred, lest we uh, we leave everyone in the lurch, I think we should introduce our special guest for this week. It's definitely a special guest. We've been playing this for a while. He came to us with a topic. I'm pretty sure. I don't think we told him Hobbit. We are here with CJ Guzan. <laughs> See, it's now became Guzan. Goo is in sticky, Guzan is in van. Guzan. Guzan, yes. There we go. I don't blame anybody. <laughs> well, this always happens when we start recording, and then it gets to that point where we're like, damn, we should have asked before. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are here. I'm not going to do it again. You have enough times. Hi, everyone. CJ. (laughs) Hello. Hello. Welcome to my uh, guest spot. Hi. Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad I could be here. Uh, Yeah. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Fred. Um, Thank you for trying. That's Mm -hmm. really important. One time a telemarketer actually said, Fuzan. I don't know where they got that from. But even in my young, like, I was like nine and I was like, yeah, boop. (laughs) Clearly the wrong name. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so don't worry about it. No, it's one of those one of those names. Well, thanks so. for joining the show, CJ. We're very excited to have you on this week as you are a, a Tolkien head of sorts. Yes, absolutely. I have been a fan of Tolkien since uh, since 1999. I believe it was when right when uh, the Fellowship of the Ring came out and I didn't I knew nothing. I knew absolutely wow. nothing about it. And it was actually my last day of summer vacation before I had to go back to school the next day and I was working with my dad all summer because we were uh, landscaping, hardscaping, just built, doing all kinds of outdoor work. And at the end of the day, my dad was basically like, you know what, let's go see it. And I had only been seeing like Frodo's image on like Burger King collectors. Yeah, right, and yeah. I was like, what is it? I don't know. And then all <laughs> of a sudden we're in the theater and it was just right off the bat, like from the moment I was like, this is just joyous as a kid. <laughs> and then slowly and steadily, right? The the riders coming down the road, it gets really scary. You get to Moria and you're like, oh my goodness. It was just, <laughs> it was otherworldly. And I have been in deep ever since. I've absolutely loved it. Wow. 
So that's kind of crazy. So you had never read The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings prior to the movies coming out? Nope. Never never heard of it. Never saw it. Um, probably recognized a reference in a Led Zeppelin song up to that point. <laughs> and that was about it. There was It was just like, oh, that's... It wasn't even on my radar. It wasn't even a thing that was ever discussed or even in the distance. It was just all of a sudden, boom, the movie is here. And that was all it took, was just seeing that first movie and that was enough. Like every other one after that was, I am going to see this. And I didn't even actually read any of the books until three and a half years ago. Wow. And I was always a huge fan of it. But then I was like, what What am I doing? There's probably way more. Boy, was I right. Yeah. Uh, like, I think it started with the Silmarillion. I was like, I'm going to I'm going to go for gold. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to go way up there. <laughs> and boy, was that a mistake. Uh, but it, <laughs> it did. It did pay off in the end, because then you had all that, you know, the, the background, the 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 full breadth of the world that Tolkien, uh, both senior and Christopher uh, created pretty mm-hmm. much together. Got to give Christi- Christopher credit because he genuinely is the reason why we have pretty much all of it based on like it was just The Hobbit, though, which is important to note. The Hobbit, that was all J.R.R., but the uh, uh, all the rest of it, that's pretty much Christopher Tolkien. Really? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I guess I, I am not familiar with the dynamics. I mean, they, Christopher Tolkien comes up a lot in, like, the history and the development, especially later on with mm-hmm. when, you know, he's starting to talk about, like, publishing rights or getting the rights to make a movie or whatever. So mm-hmm. I think that's what I've never quite understood is what exactly his dynamic was, or if he was just sort of entrusted with the whole estate, like you kind of have the keys to the franchise here and now you take it and go. Yeah, it was, well, let, let me, let me be much more clear about it is that uh, the Hobbit, the book itself, as well as then all of the story that was surrounding the approach that J.R.R. was told was taking to starting the Lord of the Rings, Mm -hmm. all of that was him. And then the Lord of the Rings himself, also him. But as soon as you then get past that, all of the things that eventually became published and known to the Mm -hmm. world that really got people into that addicted to this fantasy world. And also then all of the people who have since become prolific writers and creators based on that idea that, whoa, this is possible. That all started with Tolkien, but all the rest of it was Christopher, who at the time when Lord of the Rings was being actually written when he was in uh, England during the Blitz and whatnot, as soon as that was all done, um, Christopher was able to take over because he was a fighter pilot in South Africa at the time. Oh, wow. So he was defending the empire, as it were, down there and then was able to come back. And by that point, it had it was was really weird. It was kind of a slow burn. Not The Hobbit, though. That was really it was surprisingly quick Mm. because it was also a children's story. Right, right. And significantly less dense. (laughs) Much less dense. dense. And I mean, really, uh, not even, um, uh, oh gosh, J.K. Rowling has a real skill for reversing uh, her like story so that she can make sense of things and that it can all kind of plug in because it's not really planned. But J.R.R. was one of those ones where it was like, I I oh, I gotta I gotta figure out why they did all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and he really did. Like he went back all the way. And that's one of the things that I love about the story so much. The breadth of the ancient backdrop mm. and that history and the the fact that it goes way beyond what you can see and feel is one of my favorite parts because it's mysterious. Yeah. They don't show the monster, you know? It's there. It's true. <laughs> it's been banished. I am I'm very 
interested to get your guys take because obviously we're gonna be hyper focusing in on hobbit today Mm -hmm. and i mean but i think you cannot and just what you were saying right there you you cannot talk about the hobbit without also talking about the lord of the rings Silmarillion, because the events that came before and the events that come after inform so much about the story even if it was kind of retrofitted in the grand scheme of things by tolkien himself but it's definitely something that you look at it, it's like, well, what a simple story. But then it's like, aha, but there's reasons why, you know, Gollum was so precious about precious about his <laughs> ring, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's pretty interesting, though, that you were, I, I would say, with relativity to the time frame we're in now, mm-hmm. fairly recently getting into the books but mm-hmm. i think yeah but now you're talking 25 years ago now is when the movies were announced so we, we found some time mm-hmm. but fred what about you in terms of the hobbit i know you had talked a little bit about your lord of the rings exposure but what was like the first memory you have of like the hobbit well what i wish i would have done some research on before we started was is there a and i'm sure there was a audio drama of the hobbit like there was for lord of the rings because that which i'll just repeat for my knowledge of anything tolkien was being in the car going to swim practice my dad had recorded cassettes of like the british radio drama which actually had ian home i think playing mm. sam samwise i think we talked about it on an episode either way i would assume that's where i first saw it or the Rankin Bass, because when I went and saw The Fellowship of the Ring, I had The Fellowship, the Ralph Bakshi movie, like on VHS, and I had seen it a hundred times. I knew the story. I hadn't read the books yet. I think I read them in like during the release of the movies, mm-hmm. but it was definitely the animated movies and those audio plays for both. And I just remember it like, and we'll talk about this, just blowing my mind and confusing me that. The Hobbit book or the Hobbit animated movie and the Return of the King animated movie look the same, but the middle part doesn't. And I don't get it. And when I get older, you know, when you're older, you realize, oh, made by different people. Right. But it's still I, it, like it made me mad as like a little kid. I was like, this, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> but I remember the music from the um, the Hobbit, the Rankin Bass, like the greatest adventure, you know, like just like that kind of really- singing. <laughs> it was good. I don't know. Like that's like that folksy like singing where they like. Make their throat trill, like yes, yeah. a trill, mm-hmm. and that song. He's just like letting that trill rip throughout oh, the yeah. whole thing. Oh yeah, and I just liked it. And I also remember going through high school, and I grew up in like a southern. Uh, I'm trying to think how to describe like suburb where it was a lot of like hippie kids. So then it became like the Hobbit was something you'd see on like a poster, like in a basement. Yeah. And a lot of talk of Led Zeppelin, you know, like (laughs) there was that time. And then later, yeah, I just kind of it just became like the movies. And then The Hobbit, when Peter Jackson came out, I remember getting really excited for that. And then I think I'm going to save the rest. But I'm just saying then things kind of turned. But I've come back around. Yeah, I think I really love The Hobbit for what it is, even with I like seeing it as the simple story. And I do like thinking about the grander, like, kind of the Rosencrantz and Gilderstein of what's going on around the story that's Mm -hmm. 
on the epic level of Lord of the Rings, but then there is kind of the small, sweet kind of kid story that works. Yeah. And I did want to confirm that, yes, they did do a radio broadcast. It was an eight-part radio drama back in 1968. BBC Radio had done this. So you probably did listen to a lot of those on those tapes. Yeah, I feel like I really distinctly remember hearing, like, the Bilbo Gollum-like scenes, which were, like... Those audio dramas would get kind of freaky when they were dealing with characters like Gollum. People really go in for the voices. and mm-hmm. So I feel like I really remember that. That and when Sam stabs the spider in Return of the King, I think are two moments I remember being in the back of the car like, whoa, this is cool. Mm-hmm. Man, it is it is a pretty wild story. And I think, and I definitely am curious to get really into the weeds with like some of the story beats which like i and we'll kind of talk about it too of how they managed to extrapolate that into three movies in live action whereas you have the rank and bass animated movie that's an hour and 20 and i saved this i didn't tell you guys i watched it for the first time ever last night nice yes so up until now, I or up until last night, I had never seen the Rankin Bass, but I was so curious after we did our Rankin Bass episode that I, and Fred talked it up so much that I was like, I gotta see what this is about. And the trill vocal, the the soundtrack is incredible. <laughs> it is, and it's the guy who does the voice of Bilbo. Yes, right. What was his name? I can't remember. Um, the gentleman that played Bilbo. Yeah, because he was like also the musician. I'm pretty sure he was also the guitarist. Uh, something Preminger. Orson Auto Bean. Orson Bean. Orson. I know Otto Preminger is a voice in the cast because I saw that name today and I was like, recognize that name. Yeah, he is. Um, Might be Gandalf or something. He is the Elven King. Who? <laughs> not necessarily Elrond, right? Because. <laughs> That was a fun part of the movie for me. Yes. <laughs> it is true. That is, um, if, if there's any word that describes the, the Rankin-Bass Hobbit, it is expedited. Uh, is because it was so, like, I loved it, though, because of the fact that without all of the, I like, a, I think that I saw the animated one and read the book at the right time after all of the other world was kind of built for me in, mm-hmm. my, in my mind, you know, I actually kind of knew it. Because the animated one, as a children's story, really works. And it's not so infantilized, right? It's not a, it's it's a good, like, classic fairy tale to the degree of, not quite like the German, you know, they'll eat your children, but in a yeah. way, the threat mm-hmm. is there. And that's really what they were looking for. And I thought that it was, that's probably what kind of kept its longevity as a thing, mm-hmm. is that people still can appreciate it because there were actual stakes. It was not topical. And also one of my favorite things about Tolkien, nothing is allegory. Nothing is just some big like comparison to the world that he's living in. He's just being like, no, this is cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. And he explicitly says that because he knew that people were going to start to draw their own comparisons and that that could go wild. Yeah. And I think, do you guys see The Hobbit as a standalone piece? Like, does it still stand up as just like solely this children's story where it has some, I guess, some inherent darker themes, right? I mean, even like I had forgotten the ending of The Hobbit of like the amount of people that die. And I'm like, <laughs> whoa, OK, hold on. <laughs> and like I, I had seen all the, the live action movies in the theaters. So I think those are the first and last times I saw those. We can talk about that later on. But I didn't remember a lot of the ending beats. I just kind of always was like, oh, OK, yep, they go, they fight. And then Bilbo and Gandalf go back to the Shire. And that then we just kind of wait till Lord of the Rings to happen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, but like True. the fallout of the of the Battle of the Five Armies, I am like, oh, 
oh god <laughs> like thorin dies like that what that's mm-hmm. uh, that that completely got memory hold for me um which and i'm like but i guess getting back to the original prompt here and what i want you guys to kind of dive into is like knowing that so many people take lord of the rings so seriously it's kind of this dark almost like adult fantasy now like it's it's so rarely thought of as for children but the hobbit is not that same way i think in the way it was conceived do you think it still holds that way, or do you think it has inherited a lot of what Lord of the Rings is about? Both. I think I think it has both. Um, I think it has this weird duality about its life from its conception to now that mm-hmm. both tracks have continued. The original is still going. It is still a children's story. It is still something that people will read at pretty much any age. As soon as you can read and you can read it, you can digest it. It is playful. It is fun. It is genuinely one of those things that anyone can sink their teeth into. It's also adult. I've just read it for the first time a couple, like a couple of years ago. And I very much loved it as an adult, but I did have all that background. So it's almost like it, it's gotten a second life. So the second track, it's almost like how star Wars is also like, both a children's movie at times, mm. but then also has like all of a sudden now we have Rogue One and Andor that are yet again bringing back that term of de-infantilized. It's not a but a baby thing or for kids. It's it's quite literally like no this serious stuff. Like it has war in the title, you know. But mm. but when it comes to this, I feel like it's both of those tracks exist and both of them have enough credit to continue in that way. Right. Um. And yeah, I can't say enough about staying away from topical subjects as a writer. That that makes all the difference is as soon as you get away from topical and you just go for something that is a very basic and ancient and carried through time theme, like uh, the same thing happened with Star Wars, just as that thematic comparison is that it was like they were looking at Beowulf. They were looking at all of those and those those classics, the same Joseph Campbell. (laughs) (laughs) They were looking at all those themes and they were look and they and and for Tolkien, he wanted to do something that was very much sticking to what can we all who can we all root for mm-hmm. and what has worked in the past and it, and it wasn't so much for the sake of like yes then i'll get the money but it was more like well at least now i know that this will work because it follows a very generally same path as all of those tales that do have longevity and people do want to add to and really learn more about yeah and it's curious sorry fred i was gonna cut you no off. go ahead i didn't have anything to say except to let people know I know who uh, Joseph Campbell is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm aware of the, uh, the hero's journey. journey. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he was a singer. Yeah, he was in the Wrecking Crew. Yeah. <laughs> is that actually a name of the singer? That's well, Glenn Campbell. Was oh, okay. I'm like, wait a minute. I was like, I don't get it, but it might be a dad band. Yeah. And Tom might get it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not. Dad rock. I'm not as familiar with the Wrecking Crew. Okay. <laughs> But I am. I'll, t- I'll take your word for it. You've heard them. They've been on everything. <laughs> but when it comes to, I can't think of the the House of Shambhala. We got an expert over here. Oh, Three Dog Night. Yeah. yeah. Let's, man, let's let's not get into Three Dog Night. Not the episode. I don't want to be doing soundbite drops throughout the whole thing. But well, I will we- say real quick. Last night I had a two dog night. To add two hot dogs. Oh, nice. I, I didn't, I'm sorry. I shouldn't brag on this podcast. Were they like, Costco dogs? No, they were. It was at a children's party. They were nice and boiled. It was good. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> like my hot dogs, nice and boiled. Boiled hot dogs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fred had a two glizzy nights. Yeah. The kids are now saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the modern name of the band. It would be three glizzy nights. <laughs> <laughs> 
And it kind of ages a little bit better than Three Dog Night. <laughs> you're like, what does that mean? It's such a staple of the time, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, like, yeah, I don't know. But, I mean, I wasn't going to add too much more than it is just interesting to see the development. And, like, you were just talking about the influences even of, like, what The Hobbit had informed. And, like, Dungeons & Dragons is obviously the biggest thing. And I think you talk about that. 40 years ago, as we kind of see in Stranger Things, it's a kid's game, right? It's for kids. Now, there's podcasts about Dungeons and Dragons. There's, there's like, live, like, events about Dungeons and Dragons. There's shows. There's movies. It's for, like, adults because all those people grew up. And now you have, like, grown adults playing that, and it's no longer just a kid's thing. So that's why I'm I'm always kind of curious when I come to The Hobbit. I'm like, at, the, at its core, it still feels like a children's story, but... It, again, it's so intricately tied, which, of course, to Lord of the Rings. And that it just there's this theme that kind of stances that. But I think you talking about Star Wars definitely is the right way to view it. It's like it's for kids. It can be still for kids. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, there's there's definitely more to it. I would say I agree with you guys on that. And the only issue and it's just kind of like a perspective thing and how important movies are to you and. I'll open the subject and close it and pin it real quick. I feel it is hard for me at times to keep them separated, to quote my favorite band, The Offspring, uh, (laughs) The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, because The Hobbit movies are like making it direct sequels. The the live action ones. Right. They add that stuff in, which is the only reason why sometimes I do have trouble separating like the playful child story the hobbit today versus like lord of the rings which you know we'll talk about that's why i love the animated movie because i can get that sort of quick you know fairy tale vibe you know kid story vibe that i love yeah (laughs) well and there is and we'll get into this when we start getting into our history too but there even was a little bit of rewriting on tolkien's part to retrofit some pieces of the hobbit to fit the narrative of the lord of the rings so that Especially concerning the One Ring and making all that kind of like make sense of like why was this not such a big deal when Bilbo was throwing it on willy nilly, and now all of a sudden every time Frodo throws it on, it's like uh yeah, there's ring rates coming after you, right? <laughs> but um, I guess maybe we should talk through the actual story beats so people understand where the start and the stop is for the Hobbit. I don't know, CJ, do you want to give your your take at retelling all the story beats? Otherwise, I have it here. Sure, I can I can try. Let's see the the quickest way to summarize the summarize Proust competition. Uh, so let, let's summarize the Hobbit. So Gandalf needs to do a job, and that job, unbeknown, well, we won't go into the Lord of the Rings stuff. We'll completely ignore that, and we'll just do Hobbit. Okay, so Gandalf is getting a crew together in order to take back Erebor, which is the ancient dwarf kingdom in, I believe, the north, uh, just to the east, northeast of the Misty Mountains. Yeah. I don't want to interrupt you, but I just love the way you started this. It makes it sound a lot like Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. <laughs> Very simple. Very straight. Like I the need, format works. I need 14 guys. <laughs> yes, shots. he does. And so he you gets, he gets everybody together. Uh, the crew is, um, well, they all show up at Bilbo's house. Bilbo does not know any of this, except for the fact that he was familiar with Gandalf as a child, because Gandalf always goes to the Shire to clear his mind and build fireworks and launch them for people at the, whenever. He, not often, but when he does, everybody loves it and everyone remembers it. But he, you know, just kind of na- naively goes through his life and then he shows up again 
and he is enlisted into the company. Along with Bilbo and Gandalf are Balin, Dwalin, Dori, Ori, Nori, Keeley, Feely, Oin, Gloin, Biffer, Bofer, Bomber, and then Thorin. And That's impressive. And Thorin, <laughs> and Thorin is the king. He is the uh, uh, the, uh, the dethroned king of Erebor, although it was really, uh, the reason why he was dethroned is because they lost their kingdom to a dragon, and the dragon was Smaug, who was an evil fire drake from the north. So, the fire drake lives in the dra in the dragon's hold of Erebor, which is was their kingdom, and so they have to make their way from the Shire, which is really far away, all the way across mountains and woods and plains and a lot of uneventful territory, but then a lot of even more eventful territory, as they basically have the issue of how do we take it back? Why are we taking it back? Who's trying to stop us? And when they finally get there, the eh, dragon gets out. Uh, <laughs> it tries to, whoops. Yeah, whoops. It kills a lot of people in a nearby floating town of Dale. Dale is, not Dale, I'm sorry, the uh, Lake Town. Uh, and Lake Town, had, Asgaroth is what Lake Town used to be called. There was an ancient name for it. Um, but they basically then have to go in and the, the, the dragon is killed by the humans, but they learn about that later. And as they are then holed up in the mountain, Everybody realizes that the dragon is dead, so the main deterrent to people stealing the massive, earth-changing treasure that exists within this massive mountain that's hollowed out as a dwarven kingdom is gone. So everybody comes for their share or their take, and some of them deserve it, but dwarves are not known for being generous or otherwise uh, working with anyone on anything. Mm -hmm. They tend to, even if they have been in the past if they have been like, what is it, commissioned to make something for someone and they've been paid the money to make it for them, but they really like what they made, they'll just keep it and be like, but you didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's literally why the elves and the dwarves tend to hate each other every once in a while is because they've done that, they've made stuff for the elves. And so by the end of the story, uh, smog is not even the biggest problem. The biggest problem is there are now five separate armies fighting for this massive kingdom, uh, except for the fact that they were fighting each other first, and then a bunch of goblins get involved. That's in the book, and goblins are technically orcs. So that's another thing, is that there's a differentiation, but they're just different types of orcs, but as far as the book is concerned, they oh, he uses goblin and orc interchangeably. Mm. So that's so that's pretty much it. So then by the end, they, a bunch of them die, which is a big surprise. A bunch of the company die. I know Keely and Feely, Thorin, um, some of the other... Oin, nah, Oin dies way later. That's a whole other thing. We can get into that another time. But it was... So, so a bunch of them die. Gandalf's like, sorry about that, but you did it. And so then he... <laughs> so, so Gandalf and Bilbo then head back to... Um, all the way back to the Shire. And then Gandalf at one point, I miss, I, I think I left out one very important part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a ring. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I skip over it because I'm like, my mind is very clearly being like, not Lord of the Rings, not Lord of the Rings. <laughs> do Lord of the Rings stuff. Uh, but he finds a ring at one point when they are underground with the goblins and they are basically taken except for uh, 
Bilbo manages to escape, but he falls down into a cavern. He can only go deeper and deeper, and at the very bottom of the heart of the roots of the mountain, he finds this creature named Gollum, and Gollum is obsessed with a little ring, but he doesn't know much about the ring, except for that he finds it, picks it up, and puts it in his pocket. And after a game of riddles, which is very intriguing and very fun to watch and listen to in any form Mm -hmm. that it exists in, basically Bilbo wins the game of riddles and it is held in high regard by anyone who actually cares about that kind of thing but Gollum doesn't care because he is infested with this ring's uh the selfishness that comes with being the possessor of the ring and tries to kill him uh but (laughs) but Bilbo had it in his pocket so he puts it on he disappears and escapes and then at the end Gandalf's like so I know you have something (laughs) (laughs) and and Bilbo's like what and then and then Gandalf's like don't put, take it lightly, put it away, be careful. And that's pretty much where we're left off. And that is also in the book, which I very much enjoy. Mm-hmm. That it, it was a very nice setup, even before any of the other stuff existed. He knew how to leave a non-stressful cliffhanger. Right. There was no like, when's the next thing? It was like, oh no, it's just, it's, no, okay. I no can, Nick Fury to walk no. in at the end. <laughs> I heard you have a ring. <laughs> yeah. That was that was not a very fast summary, but a summary. Yeah, yeah. That I thought it was perfect. That okay. was. I was like when you were getting to the end, I was like, oh man, the ring. The- <laughs> <laughs> I was right there with you. Completely him. forgot like half of it. Yeah, I mean, and obviously that's the the huge MacGuffin for everything that comes after it. But I mean, I think it is interesting, right? That in this Hobbit story, the ring is not a central piece. It's just sort of like. Bilbo finds it. Gollum's a little angry that he take, took it, but for all intents and purposes, if this is the only thing you consume. You're like, well, that's a cool little piece of jewelry. He <laughs> found a he found a sword that reacts to to goblins slash orcs, right? And he found uh, you know, it's like just a bunch of different things, and it's like so it's just one other like magical artifact. But then you realize, yeah, oh, actually, no, this is the this is the centerpiece of like this entire universe essentially for ages. Uh, I mean, they literally like have ages built off of it, but mm-hmm. um, no, that was beautiful. I feel like I got to put like epic music behind yeah. the explanation <laughs> and then <laughs> but I mean, needle scratches and everything built in. <laughs> It's gotta be the Godfather. Yeah, that wasn't Lord of the Rings. Well, I was trying to do like that eerie, like Lord of the Rings. There is something that, like, the beginning music sounds very similar. It does. But yeah, what you did, I loved it. I understand you'll have something in your pocket. (laughs) I believe in Middle Earth. (laughs) In all in all things involved with that music, Joe Green dies. Well, that was very well put, though, CJ. So and I think, yes, it's it's great because then I think we have reference points and we can dive in a little deeper as we start going through everything. But, yeah, I think it's it's definitely a timeless story. It's and we just talked about it I mean, briefly and we've barely scratched the surface on this. I mean, this is a, a dense text for something that's not very long, you know, <laughs> like there's so much packed in there. There's so much lore. And I think that's what's so wonderful about a story like The Hobbit is that. I love watching things or reading things where you can tell that there's more to the world that you've seen. Like you're like, oh, that's a weird throwaway thing. Like why do goblins live in this mountain? Why is there a mountain that has all this treasure left over? Like what what's the deal with that? Like you get some details, but then you watch something like Rings of Power, which came out last year, I'm pretty sure, of 2023, I should say. And 
or 2022. I can't remember I think anymore. It's yeah. Already. Yeah. And you're like, oh yeah, here we're actually introduced to the people who built that mountain, like you know, and it's mm-hmm. like, oh god, and it's like connected so far back, and there's a whole little story too about some like dick swinging contest with hammers. <laughs> <laughs> That's really the 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 foundation of dwarf history. Yes. <laughs> Which Durin is it? Let's find out. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So perhaps then we should dive into the history of The Hobbit and how it even came to be and how this whole story came about. So Tolkien himself recollected that, or recollected, if you will, that he began The Hobbit one day early in the 1930s. He was pursuing an academic career at Oxford, and while he was marking school certificate papers, he found a blank page. Suddenly inspired, he wrote the words, In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. By late 1932, he had finished the story and then lent the manuscript to several friends, including C.S. Lewis and a fellow student named Elaine Griffiths. This is bullshit. You think he elaborates on this a little too much? I don't know. Did they cover this in the in the Tolkien movie? I don't know. I, did you see that? I no, I didn't. I, don't I know, know there's like stuff where like he looks over at a hill and it's like gives him like a World War One memory, but then it like smooths over to like a hobbit hole or something. Like it's a, it's a <laughs> yeah. lot of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, that that's another thing that I always wonder about is like, is that is that accurate? You know what I mean? Or was that just another one of those things where they just ignored his letter where it's like, there's no allegory. I'm not making a comparison. I'm making this all up. Because <laughs> also you can't escape the the influence though, right, of right. the entirety of his World War One experience and being the only person that lived from his town that, you know, that he knew. Right. So it's, it's all there. I mean, I can, mm-hmm. I can imagine that when like Moria, like being under, but that's a whole nother thing, but you know, like all of the underground stuff with Erebor, it could, it could be, I could see the Shire being, like just overgrown, like visiting Flanders fields, like five years after. I mean, there's something interesting to be spoken to and we will kind of talk to it because I don't think there is a lot of talk in the history anywhere you read it, unless you have somebody who is a historian of like Tolkien and like, well, obviously you can draw the comparisons between this vying for treasure that's compared to like, you know, this, uh, manifest destiny that like all these countries had during world war one. And like, they all fought for this territory because they all had these packs. And it's like, well, yeah, but it's like, I also remember in school learning about the wizard of Oz and people were like, well, this is based on the silver standard. You can draw this comparison back to the 1890s. And like Frank L. Baum, like obviously made the tin man, the tin man, because it's a metaphor for silver. And it's like, or he just came up with this shit and was like, I'm sure there was some influence, but like, it's not like he's sitting there going, okay, now silver slippers, that's representative of silver. Right? <laughs> Cowardly lion, that's Taft or something, you know, or like, or like Theodore Roosevelt. It's like, come on. No, if you're going to write like a nonfiction story, your life experiences are going to be in there, whether it's like minuscule or not, and whether you mean for it or not. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's mostly accidental, and then someone can read it, look at your life, and be like, oh, well, I guess I can draw comparisons, but. No, I don't think it's necessarily one to one. And he's not like, I want to sum up my experience in the war with hobbits. Yeah. <laughs> it had also been a long time. It had been a long time. Not that say that he would have forgotten any of his experiences, but it had been a long time. And he had been, as you had, were saying, he's at Oxford. He quite literally like his life is languages. His life is working with his students. That's all he's doing aside from his favorite time, which is going home and reading bedtime stories to Christopher and things like that. And right. It's. It all just it all falls into place. But any I feel like in every case when someone's like, this is that it's no, 
<laughs> yeah. Like, no, because he intended, and he very clearly explains in that one letter that was like, uh, yeah, there's no allegory. I know you're going to say there's allegory. There's no allegory. What am I drawing comparisons on? Whatever you, I mean, whatever you want, but I'm not. <laughs> right. Which was what he explicitly says. Well, and I mean, the and the 15 years following World War II are so tumultuous. There's so many things going on and changing in the world. Like World War One. World War One. Yeah. Sorry. That's okay. There yeah. was also a lot after World War II. I mean, you're, there you're was. completely right. But like, I mean, obviously that informs, I mean, you know, the whole world experience. Like you mm-hmm. can't ignore though the, the way that the world is changing. Of course, and Fred said it too, even subtly, you're going to incorporate these themes and things into the story because yeah, you saw it up close, but this is 15 years after World War One, And it's like, it's not like he's sitting there. I mean, yes, there's PTSD and you think about your, your war experience, but you're not just like, I really need to put this on paper in fiction. Like, you know, it's like, I mean, unless that is like your way of working through trauma, but if he said himself, like, that's not what it is. And mm-hmm. okay, well, it's coming from the horse's mouth. I mean, that sounds pretty embellished to the fact that he's like, ah, yes, this blank page. Let me write down this line. Ah, yes, I have a story <laughs> now, you know, but it's like, I mean, I think it's like, there's probably something like, huh, that's an interesting idea. He's just thinking about like, oh, yeah, yeah I, I write down shit all the time. And I'm like, this could be something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, C.S. Lewis was at the zoo. He was like, in lion. Which had a wardrobe. <laughs> That's a story. Perhaps he watched or read The Wizard of Oz and was like, ah, yes, there's a lion, a witch. I don't know where the wardrobe is at, but she's got to keep the slippers somewhere. I'm sure there was a wardrobe in that house. <laughs> I, say, I want to go to the zoo that just has wardrobes all over the, all over the place. What to be they? clear, I don't know when The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was written. That's not what this, this, uh, this podcast is about. Uh, 1936, so his friend Elaine Griffiths, who was a fellow student, uh, was visited in Oxford by Susan Dagnall. So keep keep track of the, the names that start getting passed around here because it starts going from one person to the next. Who was a staff member, Dagnall was, of the publisher George Allen and Unwin. She is reported to have either lent Dagnall, this is now speaking back to Griffiths, a copy of the manuscript of The Hobbit, or she was suggested to borrow it to um, Dagnall by Tolkien himself, in any event. Dagnall was impressed by it and showed the book to Stanley Unwin of her publishing company, who then asked his 10-year-old son, Rainer, to review it. Rainer's favorable comments settled Alan and Unwin's decision to publish The Hobbit. It's kind of like the original Lights, Camera, Jackson of the time. (laughs) Rainer. We owe that 10-year-old a lot. (laughs) We do. (laughs) It's just like how we all owe Viggo Mortensen's son a lot of credit, too. The same thing. He's just like, do it, Dad! And he's like, all right, all right. Did he also (laughs) tell him to do Green Book? Dad, You can Dad, be a, I've seen you eat pizza. You can do this. <laughs> Make sure you laugh with the pizza in your mouth like you do in real life. <laughs> I do like that like idea of a 10-year-old reading it because there's just like, it's a smartly written book, but there is a lot of like cool kid logic stuff like the sword that does light up when the orcs get by. Like that captured my imagination as like a 10 year old or even just the ring like making you disappear. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I always enjoyed how non contrived a lot of the situations are in Tolkien. It's always very commonsensical. Or at least good sense is applied, and then you can follow it that way. So you're not always pissed off at the characters for making dumb decisions. Mm-hmm. Right. They do sometimes, you know, but but not that often. Well, yeah, I mean, to, to also borrow again from Star Wars or something like that. It's not just like force healing is coming out of nowhere. Oh, look at look, they have power they can do now. Yeah. Like, 
Right? You remember he had eight movies where nobody did this, but <laughs> now. <laughs> that's that's the great part about Gandalf is like, I don't really know what he can do. Like magic wise. I don't necessarily know if he can help me in this situation that we're in right now. Which is we'll what do makes something. Yeah. I love that's Gandalf is by far, I think, probably my favorite character, specifically because of that. Because of the fact that he is this ancient Maiar who has been sent here to do a task and it is taking him thousands of years, but he's fine with that because he knows the whole time. He's like, I gotta be using my time. Cause this is, this is going to get bad before it gets really good. Yeah, you know? right. And what can he do? Good question. Mm-hmm. And we, we obviously learn a lot. I mean, and I, I think that, and not to speak again about Lord of the Rings too much, but one of the things I do love about fellowship is like, you kind of establish from the beginning, like Gandalf is super powerful, but like he's so like overmatched the more the journey goes on and he's just like doing everything he can up until he fights the Balrog. And you're like, oh, shit, like this guy, he's literally throwing it all down. And like mm-hmm. and it's like, wow, Gandalf doesn't have a solution here. Like he's just going to throw his body on the line and see what happens. Like mm-hmm. it's just kind of it's crazy. He is such a complex character and brilliantly performed by. So many people, but uh, John Huston in the Rankin Bass movie. I can't wait to talk about that. <laughs> That's right. It is John. Uh, and then I, I know you guys thought I was going to say Ian McKellen, who he is. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is Gandalf. Like, mm-hmm. But uh, back to our, our history. Originally, Alan and Unwin planned to illustrate the book only with the end paper maps that Tolkien had provided. But Tolkien's first tendered sketches so charmed the publisher's staff, that they opted to include them without raising the book's price despite the extra cost to the publisher. Tolkien's correspondence and the publisher's records show that he was involved in all the design and illustration of the entire book. All elements were subject of considerable correspondence and fussing over by Tolkien. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rainer Unwin, who in his publishing his memoir later on, the 10-year-old kid got his own memoir. In 1937, I'll launch. Should I do this as 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 a British? Yes, please. Should I do it as a 10-year-old or yeah. a 30-year-old? Yes. In 1937 alone, Tolkien wrote 26 letters to George Allen and Odwin. Detailed, fluent, often pungent, but infinitely polite and exasperately... Exasperatingly... That was very much like a 10-year-old. Let's try to say that word. <laughs> Precise. <laughs> <laughs> Love that it's like this fucking probably 40-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the first edition of The Hobbit was published on the 21st of September, 1937. It's a day before my birthday. Uh-huh. Uh, with a, not 1937, uh, <laughs> 50 years earlier than I was born. <laughs> but yeah, I'm almost 50 years after, uh, or after that came out, I was born. So, you know. 50th anniversary. Here you got a real life fucking dwarf. <laughs> it had a print run of 1,500 copies, which sold out by December because of the enthusiastic reviews. God, I love the online like encyclopedias and stuff. They have so many crazy details. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, we're we're going to be skimming the surface. There's so much to learn about The Hobbit. So, again, I encourage you guys to jump in anywhere you have anything to add or other points to make. Sure. So, in December 1937, The Hobbit's publisher, Stanley Unwin, asked Tolkien for a sequel. In response, Tolkien provided drafts for The Cimmerillion, but the editors rejected them, <laughs> believing that the public wanted more about Hobbits. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Tolkien subsequently began work on The New Hobbit, which would eventually become the title Lord of the Rings, a course that would not only change the context of the original story, but lead to substantial substantial changes, I can't talk, to the character of Gollum. So I was mentioning this before. In the first edition of The Hobbit, Gollum willingly bets his magic ring on the outcome of the riddle game, and he and Bilbo part amicably. But in the second edition edits, to reflect the new concept that he was working on with Lord of the Rings and the idea of the One Ring and its corrupting abilities, Tolkien made Gollum more aggressive towards Bilbo and distraught at losing his ring. So, very interesting, like, that we give George Lucas so much shit for the special editions. <laughs> <laughs> Tolkien was the OG doing this back with the Hobbit <laughs> to retrofit. <laughs> Yeah, there were a lot of there were a lot of different there's if there's one theme about the Hobbit specifically across the book and all of the following literature that that was involved with, you know, the sequel, technically, I guess, Mm -hmm. uh, and the movie was that there was a lot or the movies. There was an awful lot of going back once they had already committed quite a bit to one type like way in which the story must go and then being like, like in the movie. The first in the first one in the prologue when the when Smog actually bursts through the front of Erebor and invades, mm-hmm. that's a different dragon when the movie came out in theaters than the one that you can buy now and stream now. They went back and they re-edited it because they didn't have Smog yet. So they made a whole different dragon that then had a tail and had the right scales and had the right amount of, you know, like uh, the, the, the amount of claws and everything mm-hmm. and the color relativity. So if you watch the like theatrical version, if you can find one that came out in the theaters, they then had to go back and completely redo that when they were releasing it. And that was because one person, I think, wrote a letter to them and they were like, I notice. And they're like, oh, OK, <laughs> you know, Alan. <laughs> Gordon, you know, like, like all of the, the artists were just like, <laughs> we have to change it. So they did. But you're talking about the live action, the Peter Jackson, yeah, the ones? Peter Jackson one. They had to go back and, and redo that because they were like, well, that doesn't make any sense if it's a different dragon. Oh, How do we wow. explain that? So they had to go back and do it. But it happened in the book. And I'm certain that something in the Rankin Bass was like that. And they were like, oh, maybe. <laughs> well, yeah. Did they? I mean, and I don't know if I even have this here. Did they go back and change stuff for the Return of the King based on the back? movie i don't know tom you probably have to watch it to really soak <laughs> it in i don't think so i don't because the so. because the because how, how when was the um the bakshi movie when did that one come out the return, return of the king. king yeah or no the uh just lord of the rings i think it's called that's in like the 70s okay well if for for any in any case the um the back ralph bakshi and um Rankin Bass. Rankin Bass. Bass. So Rankin Bass and Ralph Bakshi both did um both like were the major influences for Peter Jackson mm-hmm. cinematically. And I love watching those side by side comparisons. Yes. It's shocking how A, like they were able to emulate so many of the animated shots that they did, and B, they were actually able to like just make it better in a way where it was just like, yeah, we could that was good enough. Let's just do that because right. that was the best rendition we could think of. And it probably cut down on their work as well as also kind of it not cut down and made it easy. But in mm-hmm. terms of being like, OK, we don't need to worry about being creative on that one. You know, we can just yeah. do what Ralph Bakshi did and we can just do what um, Rankin Bass. It, it does look like the Bakshi movie came out in 1978. Return of the King came out in 1980. Oh, OK. 
So it did have a little bit of leeway, but I mean, I would imagine they were probably working on it already, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, to me, it kind of feels, you know what it feels a lot like? Mm. The most recent uh, Star Wars trilogy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because it does feel like there's the first one, The Force Awakens or whatever, The Hobbit. And then the second one is a complete departure. It looks different. What it focuses on is different, which is like the Ralph Bakshi. And then the third Star Wars movie is kind of like, oh, forget the second one. Let's go back to the first one. You know, all the stuff I was doing. Like, that's what J.J. Abrams, I felt, was doing. And that's kind of what the third one feels with The Return of the King. It's like, no, no, we're going back to the Hobbit stuff we were doing. Don't worry about the middle part. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, it's down to the same voice cast, actually. I think it was Orson Bean again who voiced, uh, well, I think in this case it was, uh, would it be Frodo, probably? Because I noticed he's the lead actor, so I was like, yeah, so he is both Frodo and Bilbo in gotcha. Return of the King. Which, I mean, before we, we jump ahead, because obviously we can start talking about some of the media adaptations, but I don't want us to shortcut anything else about the book development. I don't know if you have anything else to share in your findings, CJ, about the book. One thing in that I think I ha- I might have a misconception of, on this, but I have a long-standing, long-standing memory of it being that Tolkien was, it was a blank sheet of paper. I always heard that it was a, it was a napkin and that he was at the bar. Mm. He was at the, he was at the pub and that he was, and that he had his papers and he was grading his papers because that's just, you know, one of the things you do. He's like, I don't want to be in my stuffy office. Right. So he was at the pub and having a pint. And it was right before he was about to go home. And he was just finishing all that up. And he had been working all day. And that's what came to his mind. Because it had been in the back of his mind. And he's like, yeah, in the in, in the, a hole in the ground there lied a hobbit. Or whatever it was. Not lied a hobbit. He's not dead. But you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> whatever that line was. And, and that's the way that I always remembered it. And I'm kind of surprised that it was just like, yeah, I just wrote it down because there was paper. <laughs> Well, I feel the Hobbit is the kind of story you do write in a pub. Right? That's, that's why I feel like it. It was there's a warmth to that, mm-hmm. right? That narrative all of a sudden gets this very personal level of focus, uh, and, and and I really enjoy that. So that's what I'll choose to believe. Yeah, yeah. I do know that there is. Um, that's the story of how J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter. Okay. Is that she was at a restaurant or a bar or something like that, and she started writing down the beginning of that book on a napkin. So I don't think, I don't know if you're conflating the two or not, because it does also sound right. Like where, where does the best work happen? I I never heard that about JK Rowling. So it could be like retrofit. But now I'm like wondering, like, did she just steal that story about Tolkien too? Now it's like, I don't know. Keep napkins on deck. That's what I'm thinking. (laughs) You might be inspired to write the great next fantasy novel. Um, can't do it on a wet wipe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, I'll have to maybe do a little bit of digging around, but yeah, at least this was the one that came from Wikipedia. You know, the the obviously the the unassailable resource for everything mm-hmm. in the world. But <laughs> you said infallible wrong. Oh, <laughs> I apologize. Were you saying something? No, I was just gonna ask if what the Lord of the Rings Wikipedia is called. Um, the Lord of the Rings Wikipedia. I gotta find this because you know, like, it, like, there's like Wikipedia. Yes, 
I like yours. One, one wiki to yeah. rule them all? Is that you think? Uh, Tolkapedia? It is something like the One Ring w- Wiki or something like that. Yeah, that's not bad either. Pretty sure Tolkapedia is a Pokemon. Uh, <laughs> Tolkapedia? Yeah, the One Wiki to rule them all is the official name. <laughs> I of, like that. Of the, the fan. <laughs> That should be like a, like a game show for this show. Is like, what do you think the Wikipedia is called for this property? <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> that really should be part of like That's our every episode. Because you know, there's gonna be mm-hmm. a different wiki, even for like McDonald's or something. Wikipedia. Like oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Um, <laughs> is it Wikipedia? I got it. I gotta know it now. That's famous. I can't think of it. The Mac. Big Mac, I guess, yeah. Macapedia. Oh, I don't know if McDonald's does have their own fan Wikipedia, but I'm going to definitely find out. (laughs) I thought you were going to say, I'm definitely going to make one, right? Oh, oh, it's just called the McDonald's Wiki. That's kind of boring. Oh, man. I know. It's opportunity. It really is. It really is. But regardless, I think the... The idea seems to be, at least somewhere in the lexicon, that Tolkien was inspired in a non-conventional environment. It wasn't like he was sitting down in his typewriter and like, ha ha, no, I shall write this book. Mm. It was somewhere. He was just sort of probably like, but whatever, you know, grading papers, whatever. And like, huh, yeah, actually, that's a good line. Is kind of how art starts sometimes, but it does feel very like movie, like, <laughs> like, you know, like, like Charles Dickens is like looking at like, uh, I don't know, like some kid with a crutch. And he's like, ah, oh, yes, that's my character. <laughs> some kid with a crutch. Keep moving, David. Don't look at him. Boy, boy what's your name? <laughs> Mom, that man keeps staring at me. Just keep walking. Just keep walking. <laughs> I mean, like, one, one thing that I absolutely love about Tolkien is that his entire way of of writing and creating stories in general or just working was all about what would hold his interest and then everything after that followed how do I keep other people as interested as I am in this Mm. the entire time because The Hobbit was like oh this is he simplified it in some respects specifically to be like Kids got to be able to read it. Right. But also anyone can read it if they wanted to. But then The Lord of the Rings was written very specifically yet again, as he states in that same letter from before, mm-hmm. is that he needed to make sure that it was something that would actually hold someone's attention for the entirety of an epic style and length story. Right. And that kind of focus where he's he, but he's still being true to himself. He's still saying this has to be interesting to me first. But that was his challenge that he gave himself. And I think that the proof was in the pudding when it came to The Hobbit. It was like, this doesn't need to be particularly long, but I told an awful lot of story in a short amount of time and I can work everything else out. I mean, he had to create, I, I love that he presented the Silmarillion first. What a, <laughs> what a cocky move. Um, good job, Jay. But he, he was like, he, uh, the Silmarillion is one of those things where it's like, he had to write that because he was like, how do we get here? And he wrote everything. And then he wrote all the languages. He figured out he invented the languages of the elves. And then he didn't do, he did some of the dwarves, but he specifically also didn't do some of the dwarves because in the story he was like, but they're really secretive about it. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody knows the dwarven languages. So he very specifically left that out, but he yeah. also left out Mordor and Dart and Black Speech and all those other things. So it's, I, I love that amount of dedication to it. But. I mean, yeah. And there's, uh, there was some we touched on, I think, in our Lord of the Rings episode two where we started talking about that. But I mean, the man invented a language like Mm -hmm. and that that to me is like the marks of somebody who is like brilliant that can actually like go through the the whole like you know uh 
behavior or this like exercise of trying to create their own language of like, how would they say this word? How would they say that word? What does this word mean? You know? And it's like, I mean, the world building is so giant. I just, I, I love somebody like offering like their index of like, here, here's the, here's the whole coda of how this story works. Just give us the sequel. Be like, be like George Lucas coming up. You want to know where the Wookiees came from? <laughs> I got this whole Christmas special. We can talk about life. <laughs> How many wise? <laughs> I, I, I always joke to not to get off on another tangent, but just I love the obsession that George Lucas and like every Star Wars writer has with like the letters K and Y. There is just an unnecessary amount of K's and Y's in everyone's name. Mm-hmm. I'm like, can we just use some other letters? Like Han Solo doesn't even touch that shit. I'm like, <laughs> he's got the coolest sounding name. Like Orlando. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, Plo Clune. Like, like, that's not a normal thing to say. Like, who comes up with that? Yeah. (laughs) Right. But like, and I think to to, to bring it back to Tolkien, though, too, is like some of these names are kind of goofy. I mean, you went, you rattled off every dwarf name over and over again, which, again, is so impressive. I couldn't have named three. I think even I probably watched the movie last night. But yeah, but Tolkien will also give you like, oh, yeah. Bolin, Golan. No, like he'll, he'll give you a couple of those. But why, if it ain't broke, why fix it? You know, like if it's oin and goin, hey man, you're gonna hit that name scheme. Yeah, he he's very passive in his in his in his references too, which is another thing that I really enjoy is that in in the Hobbit, even even though he hadn't really built everything out yet, all of the references within the story and self-contained within the Hobbit are very passive. They're just there and they're not in your face. He's not like look. Look, it's more like no, that's that's there, like that right. thing is there. And then when he writes the rest of the story, it's like, oh, that's from like eight thousand years ago. <laughs> like that's still around, huh? It's like like all of a sudden Glorfindel shows up, and you're like, Glorf- you mean the guy from? Oh my god, he's an old guy. You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's cool. It's just cool learning about it. It is, and I think it's just. I mean, you kind of look at it too, and I think something I was just about to comment on with the whole idea with the name scheme, though, too. I mean, that's kind of Chinese history though too right it's like a lot of names were very similar like yeah like Zhou Yu and like Zhou Yin like that was like his son or like Sima Lu Sima Yin or something like that it's like there was a lot of similarities and I think you can draw a lot of comparisons to like it being like I'm trying to think remember who uh the king was of Gondor like it's like like Sealdor not a Sealdor of uh like who was kind of like it was like Denad Oh, Denethor? Yeah, the steward. The guy who eats eats the gross tomato? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yep, Denethor. But isn't his son's name, like, very similar? Oh, no, that's Faramir. Boromir and Faramir. Yeah. Well, okay, there you go, though, too, right? It's like Mm -hmm. Boromir, Faramir. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm belaboring a a bad point, but, (laughs) you know. It's more expensive to change a suffix. Yes. Like, Frodo's, I think, dad is Frollo. Or something like Froyo, Froyo Baggins, Froyo Baggins. Now that was a tie-in they should have done. Oh, missed Froyo it. Baggins. <laughs> Imagine if Froyo was big, like, oh. like really big, as big as it is like now, like back in then. Oh man, what flavor? Do you want potato? <laughs> potato. Mm. <laughs> Love it. Just like trying to think of like Gandalf, but I couldn't come up with a good one. Like Gandalf, <laughs> Gandalf, Gandalf. It's like Gumball, but Gumdalf. <laughs> There's so many that ride a line, though. You got Gildor. You're like, yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, how much of like of world history though still stands today, right? Like we still have the Colosseum in Rome that's almost two thousand years old, right? Like 
we have the Great Wall of China. I don't know when that was built, but we know that's like ages old though too. It's like, so you do have, I mean, not characters that are people that are from back then, but it's like these structures that persevere over time. And it's like, oh yes, light the torches, like let, like Gondor, no. Again, we're talking about Lord of the Rings, but you know, it's like, I think there there is so much about the world that he really picked up on and like things that I feel like don't resonate as much in other fantasy stories for some reason. Yeah, it's true. Tolkien's kind of the one that, aside from like that, like Warhammer 40K, I don't know other, yeah. any other series <laughs> that are just like, there's a lot of time we're dealing with here. Right. You know? So The Hobbit has now been adapted many times for a variety of media, starting with March 1953. They did a stage production at St. Margaret's School in Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh and then the first motion picture adaptation of The Hobbit was Gene Deitch, I believe is how you pronounce the last name. It was a 1966 short film of just cartoon stills. Kind of sounds like rudimentary, like Disney. Like, have you guys mm-hmm. ever seen some of the old Disney cartoons? They're very, very just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Low production. Uh, but then it was in 1968, we mentioned the BBC radio did their own broadcast of uh, a part radio drama. It was by Michael Kilgariff. And then in 1977, we had the Rankin Bass animated film based on the book. It was first broadcast on NBC in the United States in uh, 1977, and the teleplay won a Peabody Award. The film received a Christopher Award, which I don't know what that is. (laughs) I didn't get that far in my research. It definitely involves someone named Christopher. That's Mm -hmm. all we know. Here, you can have my award. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's just a picture of him. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Well, let's talk a little bit about some of these adaptations, though, too, because I think we're still going to be able to get into a lot of the story talking about some of the beats that happen in these movies and these these plays and everything else. But I think when you look at something like Rankin and Bass, which I've I've learned recently, a lot of people have a lot of love for, starting with Fred. But, you know, it's it's definitely an animated movie that has a lot of like those old fashioned Disney things, but man, you appreciate a little bit more about some of the Disney animation. When you look at like, like the, the, my laugh out loud moment last night when I was watching this for the first time was like, well, there's two parts. One, there's just a cell where it's like, they're coming over to like a mountaintop, I think to look at the mountain and it just sort of like the characters just sort of pop up. Like they look like they pulled the slide. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) and then it's just, and then the moment where like Gandalf, like, makes the or turns the the trolls to stone which is not how it happens in the book right isn't that bilbo who stalls for time it's actually it's it's weird in the book if i'm remembering correctly i thought that it was it was almost like uh yeah he's stalling for time a little bit like kind of more like in the in the more current movies but then gandalf just like was there the whole time like he didn't he wasn't gone he was just like oh and just like was watching from the bushes and then it was like and there you go and he just, and i don't even remember if it was it a rock splitting or was it a the sun all of a sudden was just there i can't remember i just remembered it was different it was very different from the yeah. rankin and bass because in the rankin and bass he basically just makes the sun come up mm-hmm. and then they turn to stone and they're like dead he's just like Excellent. <laughs> he moved on very quickly. He just murdered <laughs> Whether or not they were going to eat your companions, it's just a very, like, exclamatory of joy. <laughs> but um, I guess, yeah, I don't know. Uh, maybe, Fred, if you want to even kick us off with this one, talk a little bit about some of your love for the Rankin Bass a little bit more. We only kind of touched on it briefly last time. 
Oh, I just love the animated Hobbit. Uh, I put it up there with uh, what was the other movie that they did the that we talked about with me, uh, the Last Unicorn. Mm-hmm. Very similar, where it's got this art style where the creatures can be very grotesque, which work. You know, like I feel like a thing with Disney is there's like kind of gorgeousness to their villains. Where, like, this, like, there's kind of, like, the drawings of the goblins, even some of the elves are, like, kind of freaky looking. And I really like that. I think it was the music. And also, I think kind of that old school animation style made it feel uneasy. Mm-hmm. Especially the Ralph Bakshi one. But even the Hobbit ones, I think that added to the experience for me. And that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. I was, I was, I was genuinely taken aback when I finally watched the the animated one from the seventies and how it was like, those are elves, <laughs> you know, and they're and they're like very strong Eastern European accented elves. It was very, it was very. That was the part that always got me. Was like how in the end they were just the the battle of the five armies. Right at the end, how they're just like, we do not agree. We don't agree. We do not agree. And then, <laughs> and then they all fight. And then the, someone's like goblins, and everyone's like, our, our, it's not that our shit's on pause, but we're all just like, no, we're friends now. Let's go and get them. And then they're like, we will follow you into battle. <laughs> it was very, it was very strange, and I loved it because it was memorable. And it yeah. was different. And the wood elves look so different yes. than the other elves, which like in the in the movies, live action, they're just like, I don't know. They're just, you know, like, that pissed me off because I, I love the Rankin bad so much. I thought because I'm not like deep on Lord of the Rings lore. Mm-hmm. I thought this was a different type of elf. This was like a, you know, subset that had more intense features like, cause they look like weird, like woodland things. Yeah. And I just love that look. And then when I got to the live action, I was like, these are just like more hotties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I always I always kind of work my way around that thought because I, I I used to think the same thing where I was like, they're different types of elves, aren't there? There's wood elves. There's the Noldor. There's there's all those different groups. But the way that I always look around it is it's like. Let's consider the Lord of the Rings is from humans and hobbits perspective. And because, I mean, they're technically related Mm -hmm. and they're just seeing elves. But to an elf, they would see it like you did, where it would be like, oh, you're a wood elf, you know, (laughs) like, look at how different you are, you know. And and it was they do. They do kind of look like a mix of Tinkerbell and an old banana. But (laughs) but but but, you know, between that and the Jolly Green Giant, you do have some pretty imposing figures. I always thought they were they were very primitive in that movie. Yeah, too, which also it still fit because it fit Mm -hmm. that it fit the theme. I love I love all renditions as long as it's like a they're different. Yeah, <laughs> watching know? that though too with the context of knowing that's Rankin Bass, like of like you can hear some of the same voice actors from those movies too, and like uh, every like you were talking about the Eastern European accent, I was like, well, that's just Burgermeister Meisterburger <laughs> from fucking Santa Claus. It's like you are in the realm of the wood elves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did you do get to the top of the stairs? <laughs> it's like I yeah. <laughs> I, I genuinely it made me pay attention though. Yeah, it was like, how did they know to get my like? Because at that point in the story, I would always be like, I don't what are they are they captured now? And then and then it'd be like you. I was like, ah, <laughs> okay, time to listen up. That guy's speaking. Yeah, um, it was pretty good. Yeah. When was your first time you encountered the the Rankin Bass movie? Then I think I watched it when I was a kid. Oh, you did. Before okay. I knew about anything, any of this, I think I did, but I can't confirm that I did because it was definitely one of the movies that was at my local library. Sure. And so my dad would get like that, my neighbor Totoro, 
that was it. And then they, you know, they would have those on at, at home. And I think that I watched it probably quite a few times, but I never realized the connection. I didn't, I didn't know what it was, but I did rewatch it just this last year, I think in October mm-hmm. with, with Allison and the two of us were just like, this is kind of amazing. Yeah. Like this is just a whole different take. And I loved every minute of it because of that expedited, like it moves. Just do the whole thing in like 70 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and have time for some good songs. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like that's the thing. It moves and like it has most of the songs that the Peter Jackson movies have. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. The the music made a big difference to me in The Hobbit. Yeah. In all renditions. of. Although there is definitely a moment, too, where like they're like talking to the Elven King in that. And like there's like there's like a very, very slow, gradual cross mix of two songs. So they're kind of playing simultaneously. <laughs> I just remember I was sitting there with my with, uh, with Jasmine, my fiance. And she's just like, is there there's two songs playing at once right now? And she's like, I can't even listen to what they're saying because it's like I'm trying to pay attention to the one soundtrack that's kind of epic and the one that's still somebody singing about what's happening and like <laughs> It's a lot. It's a lot, but it's great. It's it, it, but it was it was all wonderful. I'm like, are the goblins actually singing this song, or is this just their in their inner monologue? Like, kill the dwarves and eat them up. And I know when Return of the King, they definitely sing. Like, there's like, because I remember when Sam and Frodo are like getting like going into mortar, they're singing like a song like, "When there's a whip, there's a way." <laughs> <laughs> Yep, don't or what is don't put the break the dishes or whatever. Yeah, that's the plates. That's what Bilbo Baggins hates. <laughs> and both renditions are surprisingly similar. <laughs> I always I always love that because they then they go into the like behind the scenes stuff for the movie The Hobbit and they're talking about how it's like yeah we had to reimagine this we went through it and then as soon as you get to the end you're like well you've you arrived at the same station yeah. <laughs> you took different trains but you know you got to the same place. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I gotta play at least a snippet from the Bilbo Baggins hate song because that that just kept coming back. He's having like dreams about this song, and I'm like, boy, this dude really loved a fucking song with his name in it. Like, <laughs> while you're looking up, have you seen uh, the Last Unicorn, the Rankin no, Bass? You should so. check it out. It's like an hour twenty Rankin Bass animated movie with songs by America. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's got like an insane vocal cast, and it's very like. 80s fantasy like it's very similar i think you would enjoy it (laughs) it does sound good okay so here is from the animated movie that's what bilbo baggins hates that's what bilbo baggins hates so carefully carefully with the plates blunt the knives and bend the forks smash the bottles turn the corks that's what bilbo baggins hates so carefully carefully with the plates and I forgot, it's also in the live-action movie. Anytime you hear a whistle, like the, the a flute mm-hmm. in that, that is James Nesbitt or Jim Nesbitt who plays uh, Really? Yeah, he genuinely is. They, they were just like, do you want it? He's like, oh, yeah, I brought it along. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think he was doing in hair and makeup? Hearing uh, that, though, made me wish I just had like a sloppy pint of Guinness just to be like, 
shaking around, getting it mostly everywhere. <laughs> they really hit that flavor, didn't they? Yeah. They really did. It did. It's a... Uh... I mean, yeah, you always have the kind of that feel. They very much capture Irish culture as kind of the mm-hmm. the, the uh, shorthand for hobbits in these movies, right? Like well, these movies just make me want to make a roast chicken. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. Like, I agree. I love like a I love a Sunday where you just throw on Lord of the Rings and you put a roast in the oven with some <laughs> potatoes. It is true. If there's if there's one thing that I know a lot of people have been doing recently, like another evolution of enjoying these movies, especially with The Hobbit, is they just watch those parts like in the beginning and then they come up with a menu for all of their guests that is very specifically geared towards what they saw in his pantry or mm. like and everything looks that exact same way so right. it's like we're making these very special pastries from that thing we're gonna have a drinking game where every time that Biffer you know plays his flute or whatever everyone has to finish their drink something like that and they make those games and I just love how it does have that sense of like even though in every single one of those movies and each one of those stories things get really serious yeah you're always starting a place where it's like homely and very <laughs> calming and, and it's beautiful yeah it's great should we talk a little bit about the live action movies? Because yeah. again, we mentioned the development is kind of crazy, but it's I just want to insane. But Peter Jackson and Fran Welsh originally expressed interest in filming The Hobbit in 1995 it, as a part of uh, one of a trilogy. Parts two and three would have been based on Lord of the Rings. So a, a much different thought of what this could have been. But frustration arose when it was discovered that the distribution rights still belonged to United Artists. Who had kept those rights earlier on, believing that the filmmakers would prefer to adapt The Hobbit rather than Lord of the Rings. So they were very strategic in understanding that if you were ever going to try and make a movie out of any of Tolkien's work, clearly you're going to want to start with The Hobbits. You're going to have to come through us if you want to do that. So it was a way of working with Miramax to try and get those rights. Ultimately fell through. Jackson... uh, then decided to press on with adapting Lord of the Rings. Ultimately, it was produced by New Line Cinema. And in September 2006, the ownership group and management of MGM expressed interest in teaming up with New Line and Jackson to make The Hobbit. But the project had been originally conceived as two parts as early as 2006, but the proposed contents and parts changed during development. Uh, MGM wanted a second film in 2006 that would be set between The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. So kind of what Battle of Five Armies became in a way mm-hmm. where it, it was like, and when I say a second film, so basically they were like, we have two films that we want to make already. Make us a third movie that's going to bridge the gap. So following a, a long string of lawsuits, and let me tell you guys, I'm going to gloss over this. There are so many lawsuits I over yeah. this movie. And it's between everybody, between Harvey Weinstein and New Line Cinema, between, yeah, United Artists, between Christopher Tolkien and the Tolkien Estate and these guys. It was just crazy back and forward. So I'm going to spare you the drama of all this because (laughs) it will make your head spin. But there's more. (laughs) Oh, yes. But uh, basically then on December 2007, New Line and MGM announced that Peter Jackson would be executive producer on The Hobbit and the sequel. Not the director, though, at this time. Should be clear. So despite the legal suits, development proceeded, and in April 2008, Guillermo del Toro was hired to direct these films. Del Toro had said that he was a fan of Peter Jackson's trilogy, and pre-production began around August 2008 with him, Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh, and Philippa Boyens writing the script. 
it's interesting to get into the history of Guillermo del Toro because he kind of like doesn't have a lot of love. Like he, he's like, I love, I liked like the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings growing up. But he's like, but I was never a fanboy about these things. He's like, mm-hmm. what really inspired him to do this was seeing the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Mm-hmm. He was like, this is a vision. This is a world. Yeah. And it was in 2010 that Del Toro left the project because of ongoing delays. Uh, he explained at a press conference that MGM's financial troubles that were ongoing at the time, partially due to some of these lawsuits, mm-hmm. uh, had basically stalled this project out. And that because the project had not even really been greenlit to f- fully go on with like filming, like any further than it already had, he was like, I don't have time for this. I got to go make a movie about a fish man who fucks, <laughs> you know? Fish man who fucks. <laughs> so it was then in uh, October of 2010 that New Line Cinema and Warner Brothers confirmed that The Hobbit was going to proceed filming with Peter Jackson stepping in as director. There's a lot of details that are go around Peter Jackson basically stating that, like, he was not really given enough time and preparation to get into this. He was not expecting to direct these movies. He was involved with the writing because obviously he had a lot of the backgrounds. He was trying to help fill in the gaps for Del Toro. And they were very much a collaborative process, even though everybody kind of had a little bit of a different vision. But ultimately, it was going to be Del Toro's thing, right? Like he had the whole vision. He had the storyboards. Everything's starting to work out. And then when he bailed, it was just sort of like, well, we want to go on with this. Hey, you did Lord of the Rings, but... Only Peter Jackson is not as passionate about The Hobbit as he was about The Lord of the Rings itself. So I think it shows up a little bit on screen, too, in that it's there's so much filler. It's like they wanted to do what they did with The Rings of Power in The Hobbit. And I don't know that all that is bad, but it definitely makes for revisiting these movies a little bit of uh, Mm -hmm. a daunting challenge, I think. And that's. I was just going to say, I saw it recently and it felt like two trilogies kind of at the same time. Yeah. One was like a Hobbit, you know, trying to summarize the Hobbit. And the other is let me make a prequel that leads up to my Lord of the Rings movies. Right. And let's put those two together, even though in some ways they are connected. They are loosely connected at times. (laughs) Yeah. But I guess, yeah. So what are your guys' thoughts on The Hobbit as a whole, though? Like, did you enjoy it? I mean, I'm talking about the live action one. (laughs) Yeah, I did. I very much enjoyed it. And there are personal reasons for that. But artistically and and just in terms of like the writing and what they did in order to make it work, the further away I get from having just watched it and not read it and now having all the other knowledge that I do and and following those hyper-focused moments... I really do appreciate it much more the more that I learned about what they did to make it. Mm. Because when I was watching it the first time, I, I I took all the criticisms that people had, like, you know, like, oh, they're so the dwarves are so close to those furnaces or whatever. <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing where it's like they'd be burning up. But then you learn more about this, about just the the world of Tolkien. You're like, oh, yeah, no, dwarves are like hard to burn. Mm-hmm. They very specifically are fine in that kind of an environment or like all those different things. And they they included all of that. They put all of that information in there to make it make sense with Tolkien but also make it entertaining but to your point they really did spitball quite a bit there was a whole like year of filming after principal photography and a number of the pickups were done specifically just to figure out what the hell was going to happen in the battle of five armies because they had no idea they had absolutely no idea it was they did everything and then they're like um 
uh, everyone get in a room. And <laughs> Peter was just like, what do we, what do we want to do? Uh, yeah. you know, and they, and they would just spitball and they figured out all these things. I think it came together very well. I have only one issue with all of, with all three of them. For some reason, even though I love the desolation of smog, it is it is a very very good intermediary movie of the three. I always fall asleep. Oh no! <laughs> we get into El Erebor. Only then I'm interested in what's being said. Maybe it's the time that I watched the movie. I don't know, but I always feel sleepy in that part, mm-hmm. and I don't know why that is. But that's literally my only like. It, I don't even know if it's a criticism as much as just something I've noticed about myself is that the last like. Six times I've watched it, four of them I fell asleep. Oh, no. And I don't know why. It's like, is it the pacing? What What could it be? Is it just Benedict Cumberbatch? Is it the beauty <laughs> of his voice? Is that what it is? He I'm just not sure. To sleep. Yeah, yeah. But it, and, and, and it's not boring. That's another thing that is surprising because there are plenty of boring movies that can put me out, but not. But that one, I when if I'm like fully like there, it's like yes, and it was amazing in the theater. But for some reason, I just can't stay awake for that. <laughs> I always wake up at the end though. It's, so it's, interesting. It's like, huh? Yeah. And only that part. I just I find that so strange. I think it. I, I don't know. Is it the? Is it the the big golden like king that becomes the big like the room right? The room fills oh, yeah, with yeah, gold, yeah, and yeah, then yeah, he yeah. later on I think has that has that like. Set, uh, thing happened in the five battle of the five armies where he's getting sucked in mm. like that kind of a thing that's always exciting and it's like oh you need to know this beforehand but that is my only real critique of it other than like a lot of little minor minor things here and there but Very I, interesting it's, it's impressive i feel like every single one of the movies was I, I also didn't know that they did it in very much in like okay if this then <laughs> And like they had that kind of a formula where it's like, oh, yeah, let's make this happen and let's make this work. And they realized very quickly. And I thought rightfully that they needed three in order to do it um, mm. because otherwise it was going to be just a little bit too dense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you feel like because you read The Silmarillion that that helped your appreciation of those movies? When I got when I finally did read The Silmarillion, yes, it made them even better. It made all of the it made about 80. 80 to 90% of the criticisms that I had heard of the Hobbit just completely disappear mm. because those were just things from people who didn't know what they were showing. Sure. Because that was not the Tolkien universe. It's like, there are just some things that it's like how some people think like, uh, sorry to bring Lord of the Rings back in again, but when the witch King is killed, yeah, they think it's because that, uh, uh, Eowyn is a woman that she kills him. Now, granted it just shocks him. <laughs> yeah. It's just, yeah. But the, but the, the, the knife, the dagger that, Mary has is a magical dagger because he gets that from the Barrow Downs, which is like north of the Shire on their first trip when they're just trying to escape. They're taken by a a Barrow White, which Mm. is basically like a massive magical zombie thing. And that thing was actually explicitly put there thousands of years before by the Witch King of Angmar Mm. when he had first started doing his magical bullshittery and just in general messing with the people of Arnor. And so then that was just in that cave. They found it when Tom Bombadil shows up and just like, hey, fuck off, Barrow White, (laughs) and then then picks them up. They take them, great. They get to Rivendell. They're like, those are, yeah, those are powerful blades. Great, have fun. And they go through the whole thing and they go, you know, he joins Rohan, he's in with the cavalry and he stabs the uh, the 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 witch king with that magical blade that was made by the ancient Numenorians who were then their descendants were the uh, the people of Arnor that had specifically made that blade with magic to combat 
the Witch King of Angmar and his wizardry or whatever you would call it, his witchcraft. Interesting. So that's what that's what ended up doing him in in terms of annihilated all of that all of his magical capacity and mm. his abilities. And then Eowyn was the person there. Anyone could have done it, but she was also one of the best like combat choices for right. that because she was actually an amazing uh, master swordsman, essentially. Right. Swordswoman, swordsman, swordsperson. She knew what she was doing, and that was awesome, too. But yeah. I feel like that, that doesn't take away from any of the like magnanimity, magnanimity of the situation. I yeah. I mean, and I think there is something to be said, too. It's like for anything you watch, and I think even Marvel and DC lean on this a little bit too of like if you've read all the comics you kind of pick up on certain things and certain like powers that people have or artifacts right and it's like and that's always going to add to your understanding of what's happening in these movies or like the deeper lore understanding of why something is the way it is but I think yeah the, at the same end though it's like for an audience that maybe hasn't read that I think that's where some of those criticisms come from is like well what I gotta read you know yeah. four more books to understand exactly <laughs> what this stuff is mm-hmm. but yeah I, I don't know I'm and I'm curious where you stand on this Fred like what do you think of the movies uh after re-watching them I liked them more than when I originally saw them uh Big thing for me is I kind of wish the Hobbit movies weren't made by Peter Jackson and the creative mm. team because, and I don't know if it was a time thing, I just think kind of the look of the film is different, and that would be fine if they didn't try to so intrinsically tie the two trilogies together mm. with same actors and story points. That's And it doesn't bother me that much. That would be like my critique of it as a film, which maybe isn't even the best way to look at these three Hobbit movies. I think they're kind of like an experience of the book The Hobbit. I don't think they necessarily work as individual movies, but I did enjoy rewatching them. Mm-hmm. I kind of think, like like I said before, I wish almost they separated like the Hobbit stuff and kind of the build up to the Ring of Power, not the show, but just the idea of the Ring. Um, all the Gandalf journeys, kind of that happened throughout the Hobbit movies. I almost wish like they did three Hobbit movies just like they did, the same story beats. But they were an hour 45 minutes long yeah. and yeah. it just focused on that. If you're going to do a CG thing versus like the real look, blow that up more. Give me more color, like because you're going to you're playing in The Hobbit versus Lord of the Rings. I kind of want it to look more different or be more similar than what it is where it kind of sits in the middle. Yeah. And the big thing that bugs me about the Peter Jackson, and I think it's probably a time constraint thing, is why am I looking at a CG orc right now? Right. It was a facial expression thing. But you have given me nightmares with people in prosthetics Mm -hmm. doing very little. Like, I don't need that much expression. Mm -hmm. A guy looking at you going, what about the legs? They look fresh. (laughs) That, to me, is way more effective and scary than, like, the CG guy, which I think it's a cool design. It's just, like, you gave me such good orc makeup for three movies, Mm -hmm. and now you're kind of giving me, like, you know, the computers. (laughs) Yeah, and they they actually fell away from it at some point during the movies as they kept moving in, because they did a lot of practical um, orc orc makeup actually throughout the movie but you never really get that as the the focus and also it might have also been because the same the guy who plays azog is the same guy who plays like 
almost all of the other big oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's like it's, the it's guy like, from it, fellowship of the ring like yeah, the big yep, girl yeah, guy. yeah yeah okay. it's the it's that it's that one like absolutely a he also plays the witch king it's that that right. maori uh uh stunt man that dude, yeah what is his name i, I can't, can't remember but and he's, he's like been in other stuff recently yeah too. he's been in a load of Being stuff big yeah i don't think it's it is one of those things where it might have been a it might have been a cost thing, but it's also like, but at the time, isn't that when CG started, CGI really started to like up the cost because it was, then again, they were also cutting edge, right? Mm-hmm. So it was them and Star Wars, basically those two studios, you have Industrial Light and Magic, and then you have Weta Workshop that are doing everything. But then again, who did CGI on? It wasn't Weta. I'm not right? sure. It was, another, it was another part of the organization. It was not from New Line, but... Yeah. So just to get to put the, the pin in the, the actor. So they're crediting Lawrence McOare as Lertz. Yeah. But then they also credit someone named Brett Ma- Brent McIntyre as the Witch King. I mean, that's like a, the vocal Voice. performance. Oh, yeah, Brent, okay. Brent got it, McIntyre, got, it, got but it. Yeah, he's the... That's, that's his guy. There his you thing. go. So, but yeah, I think... And it's interesting, yeah, that they made that dynamic. I mean, with CGI even, I, I don't know. And I think the the best thing that Hollywood has done is cooled it on trying to <laughs> animate faces unless you have somebody specifically doing a motion capture thing similar to what Peter or Andy Serkis has been doing, right? And, like, because I think he kind of revolutionized the technology. I think he's still the best person to understand how it works because he had to kind of, like, make it work. Like, he he was the one who, like revolutionize it with Peter Jackson and it's, but I think there's so many times you see it. And I think the only other great example I can think of is like Josh Brolin as Thanos. And like, I just, it feels like you can actually kind of see him emote a little bit and you kind of get the anguish in his face, you know, in some of those moments. But I think that's something you saw a lot with Gollum and you even see a little bit with King Kong when Andy Serkis is playing that. But, um, I mean, I appreciate a good prosthetic. I love to see puppeteering and everything because I think there's so much more art to that than just trying to overlay somebody's face with, you know, animation. Like, animation should be animation in my regard of, like, make a movie like the Backsheet movie, make it, like, CGI, you know, completely. And then you have a very interesting Lord of the Rings story. Agreed. I think separating it from the Lord of the Rings or making it more similar... Would have been a better option in my opinion, but I like what they did. Do you have any more ideas about the Jackson trilogy, Tom? I guess where I stand on it was this. And I kind of hinted at this in our like kind of off pod conversation I was talking to you guys about. I I don't think the the content all bothers me. In fact, I think having watched Rings of Power now. I have a greater appreciation for some of the world building that was going on there. And I think even when I saw these movies in the theater, I was like, oh, this is interesting. But I didn't know the story of The Hobbit. I've never read The Hobbit. So I should actually put that out there as much as I'm, I'm going off of the Rankin Bass movie and these live action movies and then what I've read about it, you know. But, yeah, I've never I've never read it. So I guess I was just kind of taking everything at face value. I was like, wow, they really set up like, like Sauron all the way back in this and – whether it actually was in them is not, but I guess I agree with you though, Fred. Like I think my only big critique is it's kind of daunting to come back and be like three, three hour movies because they do sort of feel a little uneven in terms of the story they're trying to tell. And I don't think it's bad. I just think that there's a lot there that I would have loved them to streamline. And I kind of love the idea of like, doing like three, two hours to really hit on the Hobbit story itself and be like, 
It's this, it's that, it's that. Now we're going to follow Gandalf around. Oh, he runs into, uh, what's his name? Radigan or Radigan? Radigan. I don't know what that Rags. is. Pretty sure Radigan is the villain in, in the Great Mouth of Radigan. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Basil. Can you imagine if that was Radigan? Yes. Vincent, and with Vincent Price as Radigan. I have some bird shit in my hair. <laughs> Not good. Not good at all. Gandalf, you bumbling fool of a wizard. <laughs> Why am I here, Gandalf? It's funny when I do Vincent Price impression, it is the... Great Mouse Detective Vincent. Yeah. It's, it's not yeah. the like old school Vincent. <laughs> no. But, oh, it's so good. God, that's right. Radigan. Or whatever. I, which I was like, why is his name not like Moriarty or like Radiarty or something? Moriarty? Radigan and Basil. Yeah. Man, that movie's so good. It's a good movie. I love that movie. We, we'll save it for the Great Mouse. We'll save it for the Sherlock the podcast <laughs> episode. <laughs> the hundred different properties, which also stars some of the people in this movie mm -hmm. but um to talk a little about yeah who is in this so we have uh i almost said martin short which is not <laughs> accurate although that yes, would be martin was short yes yeah <laughs> so tell me there Gandalf. <laughs> what do you want me to burgle <laughs> it has to be that character it has to be judy click like doing hot, like <laughs> bilbo <laughs> See, this is ring. <laughs> so why not a necklace? <laughs> I don't know. Is this Martin Freeman. Martin Freeman. <laughs> I tried to be so indignant about it. Where am I? <laughs> mm -hmm. So we have Martin Freeman, who plays uh, yeah, Mr. Watson in the Sherlock TV show from the BBC. Uh, we have Richard Armitage as Thorin. We have Kate Blanchett as Galadriel, who, is she in the Hobbit book? She's, uh, I don't think no, so. No, because in the, they, they had to flesh that out. Like what, what Fred was saying right. earlier of how they, they made it, they could have kept it separate because in the book, Gandalf's just like, gotta go to a meeting, goes to the <laughs> meeting, bunch of stuff happens that we never hear back from him about. And then he just appears again. He's just like, come on, give me my burglar back, you know, <laughs> but, but they, they had to include that. So she's not in the book, but she is in the movie and it makes, it makes sense. So yeah. Got it. Okay. And then obviously Ian McKellen back as Gandalf, mm -hmm. you know, um, in, impeccable casting. Uh, and then we have, I mean, the rest of the dwarves. Do I go through every one of them? I mean. It's a lot of like, like people who have TV shows in England. Mm -hmm. Like it's got the pole dark guy in there. It's got, I mean, now he's famous, but Lee Pace is the one elf in the later ones. Like. Mm -hmm. At the time, the it King, was right. people just like simmering about to get started. But now there's a lot of people who've got good careers now and, and of, of, of the dwarves. Yeah, some some of them had like some pre were pretty well known. You make a good point about like big BBC uh, stars. Like mm -hmm. there were some of the older dwarves I know were were doing uh, were pretty big, and they were the smaller parts, uh, like uh, like Owen and uh, which also Owen or Glo Owen or Owen. Glowin or Gloin. I've heard it both ways. I kind of like Glowin. <laughs> yeah. And Owen. Yeah. Glowin kinda, and Owen. Glowin and Owen. That is but, fun, actually. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the one notable here that I, I noted was Graham McTavish because he's kind of had a pretty good run here recently. Mm -hmm. Is he the werebear? He's, uh, no. He, wait, is he? I don't know. I'm asking. I don't know. Which one's the werebear? 
I'm, I just heard that name and I didn't know is that one of the dwarves. Graham McT- yeah, oh yeah, Graham McTavish plays uh, Dwalin. Oh, okay. Yes. And, and he's a super emotional guy. The behind the scenes is a lot of him being just like really upset that people have to leave. Do you have a picture <laughs> of him? Yeah, yeah, I'll pull him up. And the bald bald with the um bald he, on the top. He's a very side. Yeah, bald intense guy. Uh, okay. First dwarf that appears, I think. Yeah, and he well, I mean, you'll remember him if you've watched a lot of like like big TV shows recently. He's in House of the Dragon. He's in The mm-hmm. Witcher. He is in. Um, well, he's a voice in Ducktales, which is hilarious. <laughs> Whoa! Where's the meat? <laughs> that's his. That's his thing. But... Fergus McDuck. I don't know. Oh, he's Fergus. Mm-hmm. I I have not watched that one, so I don't know uh, much about it. But um, yes, yeah, so, I mean you have, and then obviously we talked about Benedict Cumberbatch, who is the voice of Smug. Mm-hmm. So, and then we had. Orlando Bloom back as Legolas, who I know was added to the movie because I remember reading about With that. Contacts. Oh, that's right. His eyes are different, and that's the other thing I don't like. <laughs> but, but when elves are younger, you know, their eyes have more glow. <laughs> I thought that's what you were going to say. It was no, going to be like you- the dwarf and the heat thing. <laughs> I actually, I, that was, I looked at it recently. I watched specifically to see, wait a minute, because I always noticed like in The Hobbits, like, yeah, they are very bright now. And then I went back. I was like, no, they yeah, they just emphasized it more. They were always that color. But I always thought that they were darker. But it's like, oh, maybe he was just always in the dark and his pupils were bigger. I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) That was the first thing I noticed when I watched these movies Mm -hmm. and he came on. I was like, whoa, whoa, (laughs) he glowy. (laughs) (laughs) And then we have this whole side plot, too, with Evangeline Lilly is in the movie as like another elf. And her her name is Toriel. 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 I'm sorry. And she she she's like got the hots for uh, the the one like hot dwarf is an Achilles or mm-hmm. the guy from the Poldark show. That's all I remember. And he was on a uh, Being Human, the BBC version. Is it? Uh, let me see. Not Aiden Turner then. Yeah, right? Aiden Turner because he plays young Sam Elliott in The Man Who Killed Hitler, and then would go on to kill Bigfoot. I think is the name of the. Oh movie. really? Whoa. That's God, that's a great name for a movie. <laughs> and if you look at him, he kind you can kind of see him playing a young Sam Neill. Like they make him look like it's weird at first. You're like no, and then you're like. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think obviously then uh, Hugo Weaving and Christopher Lee are back playing Elrond, Saruman, Ian Holm is old Bilbo, which I mean, I, mean, I don't want to show my hand for could have, would have, should have, but man, I would have loved to see him as young Bilbo in like an older like live action Hobbit. Uh, I thought you'd say like do like an Irishman thing <laughs> for the whole movie. <laughs> they just yeah. put oh, Ian Holm in makeup or whatever and just have him be young Bilbo. I yeah. love that. Gosh. But then we also have Luke Evans as Bard, um, who's the guy who shoots smog. And, what a hottie. Yeah, who also is Gaston in Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> if you saw the live action one. I, I love Luke Evans in Ma. Ma. Ma? Oh, Ma. like the, the one with uh, Octavia Spencer? Yep. <laughs> He's in that? Yep. God, it's incredible. And he <laughs> has, I believe he has a romance scene with uh, Octavia Spencer in it. Ooh. Wow. But- Ma. In terms of someone who really like showed their metal on the movies, Luke Evans. Yeah. He did all of his own stunts. And oh, you know, uh-huh. you know when, when he, well, like the vast majority of it, because they'd be like, we're going to, would it be easier if you just, I'll just do it. And they <laughs> did like when he's, when he's trying to fire an arrow or two into smog and he's jumping over the rooftops. 
They had him do that over and over and over, and he showed his hands at the end, and he was bleeding oh, from gosh. all of that. And he was just like, and all the stuntmen apparently came to him afterwards, and they all like took him out that night, and they're all <laughs> like, like if you get the stuntmen, like if you get their respect, that's something. But mm-hmm. that's one of those things where it's like, oh, you don't just look good; you are good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good for you, Luke. Yeah, but he's a strong part of those of two and three. For yeah, he's. I think he's he's a really good part, and it is funny to see, yeah, just like how little that part is in like the the rank and bass. And you're like, oh, okay, that guy's just like a he's, uh, he's just a generic guy. Yeah, in the rank and bass, he's like, there's like six, here. There's like six yeah. of him in the same crowd. My background was not letting me down. Let me give a shot. <laughs> You, not human. <laughs> uh, and I'm pretty sure Stephen Fry is like the underground Goblin King, and he's the like head of Lake Town. No, he's no, not he's both. not the Goblin King. He's just the, the, gob- the master. The King is a guy, though. It is a the Goblin King. The is Goblin a guy. King is a guy, right. and that is, that is in context. That makes sense. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm a, glad you knew because I, I say, go- I say well, who is isn't it? Goblin King the same guy as uh, as. Uh, Dex from the Clone War, from uh, Attack of the Clones, that Obi Wan goes to visit Dexter in the Jackson? diner. Yeah, Ooh, isn't that so the same know. guy? Do you guys? So, <laughs> ask, do we want to know? So yeah. uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, okay. So the the correct answer, right? So he's the Great Goblin, right? That's mm-hmm. his title in in the in the movies. He's got the neck ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He is Barry Humphreys is his name. <laughs> he is. So you thought he is in Star Wars? Yeah, he's a, he's he in at he's least Dexter one Jetster. of them. Either Dexter Jetster or Dexter Jetster and the and the king of the Gungans. <laughs> uh, the oh, oh, guy. Bin. <laughs> that would I think it might be that guy. That might be him. Yeah. Okay. Let me make sure that he's not. There's not another role that's not. Um, In my other the planet core. Usa boss. Usa thinking Usa greater than the good guns. <laughs> Just let so some. you guys are thinking of Brian Blessed. Blessed. That was yeah, Brian Blessed. But. I don't see him with a credit in Lord or The Hobbit here. Not Dex. It's not him. It would be then the guy who plays Dexter Jetster. That's what I think. <sighs> We're going to be right about something. <laughs> Guys, I'm, I'm trying to look through this. I'm not seeing the connections. Man, maybe they just look similar. Maybe it was Stephen Fry. <laughs> <laughs> Telling y'all, I think it was this uh, this other cat. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember his name anymore. But uh, regardless, I mean, it's a it's a very interesting point. He's got the big ball and his fucking neck. I mean, yeah, they're crediting the great goblin as Barry Humphreys, who is known. I don't know Bruce in Finding Nemo. Oh, that's oh, what it is. Bruce, that's he right. is the guy who is rich as hell. But I mean, you know, and, and it's interesting because I think, you know, not to say critics know everything or do anything, but I think you are going to find different opinions from, you know, a lot of different people on what they thought of these movies. And critics, I think, were a little lukewarm on the whole trilogy because I think they weren't people who necessarily had read The Hobbit and knew every little piece. But I guess it's, I don't know. You have people who are precious about that story. You have people who are very precious about, 
making the world as expansive as possible. You can't please everybody. And it's like, so I think it's considering the time that Jackson was given, I think they, they put together something that was still entertaining. I think you look at it. I don't know that I would hold it up to Lord of the Rings as like the same quality, but I think the endeavor was definitely something to be appreciative of. And I mean, I think it's the only thing for me that is ever holding me back from revisiting those. I'm like, I, it's the same thing that holds me back. And that's just my level of fandom of Lord of the Rings. I don't go and seek those out and spend three and a half hours with them, you know, <laughs> a movie on a given day. I, if, it, if I'm watching three and a half hours of a movie, I need to like gear up and be like, I'm starting this at 4 p.m. I got, I got plenty of bathroom breaks, dinner break. <laughs> you know, yeah. that was how I took did uh, Killers of the Flower Moon recently, which we'll be talking about soon. But, um, but yeah, I guess any other thoughts on the movies before we move on to our coulda, woulda, shoulda segment? Can can I? I, I want to share the story of why I why I actually love the movies. Yes, specifically because it has a it has a kind of a nostalgic, um, and purposeful. Um, story behind it for please me. share so, thank you so the, the um uh when allison and i were in college so we were both went to st norbert college up in uh, de Pere, wisconsin mm-hmm. and it was from 2010 to 2014 when we were there mm-hmm. and that was obviously when these movies were coming out and every time that they that that they would come out they'd come out around december right and so it would be allison's birthday december 17th and so we would then be back home Usually after the first couple of years of college, which we were almost always up there, but then we'd be back home for winter break and it might be a little bit longer. You usually get about a month off for winter break at St. Norbert. And so we would, or like two or three weeks. And during that time we'd be down South and there'd always be a blizzard. There'd always be snow, but it would be her birthday. And I'm like, I don't really, Allison was not a big fan of movies going to the movie theaters or whatever. She was fine watching them, but that she never really had like a really good cinematic experience with anything. Sure. And so I was like, this you love lord of the rings She's like i do so let's do this and so i would bring her out to dinner and then the two of us would then go see that movie and then we'd go home and we did it with the first one we did it with desolation of smog we did it with battle of five armies and each and every one of those times blizzard dinner movie blizzard home <laughs> it was the exact same all three movies that's why and, and every single time it was like she would be like is that really what we're doing again? I'm like, yes. And then she'd be like, oh, all right. And then we'd do it again. She'd be like, that was pretty good. And then, and then we'd do it the third time. And she's like, okay, that was impressive. You know, that was a really good movie. And then and and then as the years went on, it just became another one of those things where it was like it had this connection to our relationship and to our collective and, and joint knowledge of the series. Yeah. And it always had the same feeling of when I watched those movies, I think of the drive home you know, in a blizzard at like midnight from a late <laughs> showing of the of one of those movies. And since then, I've also learned that aside from the first time that you watch a movie, which you should try and watch it from start to finish, if you can, uh, in whatever the environment is that makes sense to you. But, you know, it helps you kind of see it the way that the filmmaker has been has laid it all out. But I've learned since then that with all of these movies, especially the epics that are particularly long just watch as much as you're comfortable watching in a sitting and then turn it off and then come back exactly where you were mm. because you won't end it not on a beat. You'll always end it on one of those beats where it's like, that makes sense because that's how the story is told anyway. And that way you can watch the extended editions of the Lord of the Rings an hour and a half at a time at the most. Like you were saying, these would be better if they were an hour and 45 minutes each. 
that has actually become what I've evolved into in terms uh-huh. of my watching of it. I never watched the whole movie on its own. It's another one of the ways that I combat, you know, falling asleep during smug is, is that, nope, I'm just going to wait until, all right, they got there. Wonderful. Tomorrow mm-hmm. I'm watching that. And then it doesn't happen. That's and great. that, and that's not what I'm fighting, but it, 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 it is quite literally, I'm able to focus on everything and I'm able to actually like pay attention to all the detail. Cause if there's one thing that these movies, all of these movies have, it is that immense, like the grandiosity of the endeavor that the filmmakers took to make it yeah. was just huge. And it's like, yeah, it's, yeah, you were saying earlier, you, they don't compare to the Lord of the Rings. It's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. That's like peak cinema. And these are also very entertaining, which should be said, but you can't really compare the two but you can compare them but you shouldn't right. but you can because they did it and it's i, I just i enjoy it i mean much. yeah it, and it's a beautiful story first and foremost i love that you have this attachment of like this shared memory experience of like oh yeah my wife and i did this you know this you know she was your wife at the time but you know it's like oh well, yeah this was always our our re- repetitive event and there's always this significance to each of those things but yeah, i also think like you know, and just speaking to the the differentiations between the the prequels and the originals, I mean, it's very Star Wars, right? It's like, I mean, nobody's going to tell all you that the prequel trilogy. I think the Hobbit trilogy is a little bit better than the Star Wars prequels, but but I think you know it's kind of that same almost kind of thing of like there's there's still reverence for the prequels and they're still fun to watch, especially now. I mean, they've aged a little differently, but we're totally different story, and I think. In the same way, like I said, I have a better appreciation. I think I would actually enjoy these Hobbit movies more now having ingrained myself more in the lore of Middle Earth. But mm-hmm. yeah. Should we kind of get into our coulda, woulda, shoulda then and maybe talk a little bit about what Del Toro's vision could have looked like? Because I, while I rarely be like, oh, here, I'm going to offer one out the gate. I mean, th- this is the obvious sliding door here, right? you know? What does Del Toro's version look like? How is it different? I mean, what what do we feel like he could have brought differently? As you said earlier, I'm going to bring this back. More colors, and then also the 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 color drained from parts also. So so much more um, uh, drained and monotone at parts. Basically, more saturation. Whether that means the color the colors become more colorful and the uh, dim areas become much darker mm. i feel like that accentuation of the feelings and the moods of all of the different parts of the story was is what we would see and also probably a little bit more of a seriousness at parts mm. instead of like cuz cuz obviously the dwarves were able to fight through all those different situations in very outlandish ways that still works with the story and what we know about tolkien but i feel like Guillermo might have made it more pointed Mm. Less whimsy. Less whimsy, more dumb luck, mm. which would have also, I think, translated a little bit more to the dangers that they were facing. Mm-hmm. Because it was there, but it, it almost like it was almost like you had to be reminded of it consistently. Whereas with Guillermo, I feel like he probably wouldn't have shown so many of the goblins. We'd see eyes in the dark. We wouldn't see their whole shape all the time. That's at least kind of how I would feel it would be. Well, it's going to be hard because a lot of the prosthetic characters are sh- like smaller, like Gollum. So Doug Jones is going to be having a hard time finding <laughs> a role in this movie. <laughs> like, Dougie, baby, you're too tall for this one. But he could have played the orc fan, maybe. Mm-hmm. That's all I would have said. Doug Jones would have had a big role in it, which yeah. I'm pro Doug Jones. <laughs> um, I think because 
Guillermo uses CG, but he uses it to accentuate his practical effects. I think we would have gotten some really cool character creature design. Like, I would have loved to see what his spiders would have looked like or like if he would have done the wood elves in the way that I, you know, how did you describe them? Uh, banana. Uh, yeah, Tinker Tinkerbell with Tinkerbell. banana, a little bit of green giant. Yeah. I think we would have got, I would have hoped we would have gotten more of that, but also in reality, it sounded like you said that he wasn't a big Hobbit fan. He liked the Lord of the Rings movies. Mm-hmm. Maybe he would have felt he had to put himself into that mold more. Mm-hmm. So maybe his vision wouldn't have been when you think a Guillermo del Toro Hobbit movie, like I think images pop in your head. I don't necessarily if he know if he would have gotten to make that movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's my coulda, woulda, shoulda. I want his loosely attached to the trilogy Hobbit movie or movie. I'll take a trilogy, like I said, just tighten them up and then make your what happened before, like what kicked off Lord of the Rings movie. Make that a separate thing. And you can kind of have fun playing it that they're at the same time. But I just want it to feel more different. Right. Because, yeah, I think you hit on something exactly that would have been my concern, too. Knowing that this comes after Lord of the Rings, would there have been the pressure to maintain some of that vision that was already established by Jackson? And we kind of talked about it at the start. Like, this whole thing got tanked because studios are petty. And like they, they if you're going to make a movie, you're going to make it with us or we're going to we're going to have the ownership rights like and and like, of course, there's always the Hollywood of it all of like what would have happened had even Guillermo del Toro gotten his hands on it back in like 1997 previous to creating the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Right. Like, OK, I'm going to make my Lord or Hobbit movie now. I mean, he it wouldn't have worked this way because obviously he was inspired by Peter Jackson. But you imagine something of like. 1997 1999 we're talking like blade 2 era guillermo del toro making the hobbit and then that sets the stage for peter jackson's lord of the rings trilogy and then you get i think two very unique visions because then peter jackson can kind of still cook a little bit without necessarily needing to like like he's like okay but we're gonna kind of just make this more epic and not have to be as kind of dark fantasy because i think the the cautionary tale of having a Guillermo del Toro-led movie where it seems like it's a very famous fantasy story. I remember Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland was going to be like the thing. People are like, this guy was born to make this movie. The movie blew. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being so amped to see that. Oh, so many basements in high school where we talked about, man, Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. It's going to like be scary like right. it's not gonna be for kids man and then you saw it and I was like <laughs> it's not for kids it's not for anyone because <laughs> yeah. again i think a trap that he's fallen into and something that we kind of touched on even with peter jackson with the hobbit is like the the love and this this like leaning on cgi i think you you lose something when you are trying to over CGI something and there's so I think there's a reason the Lord of the Rings hits so much harder because of those those practical effects, the the forced perspective rather than trying to like minimize somebody on screen. I'm not saying they did that in The Hobbit. I don't think they did. I think they did the same For, shit that they did. Yeah, they did. They did a lot of the same exact right. forced perspective. Yeah. And like that 
makes such a difference because it feels more real. Well, we know these were made differently because there was that famous picture of Ian McKellen on the set of The Hobbit where he had a breakdown because he was just surrounded by tennis balls. And he was like, this is not what I came back for. (laughs) You know, like it was like day one or two. And he had a and he genuinely like he had to have a talk with Peter and Peter was just like he they realized as he was doing it that he just could not focus because it was like I I don't this is not what I want to do. And he was very kind about it. But you could tell it's like for an English like superior Mm -hmm. actor to be like, Peter, it's just I don't think it's working. You'd be like, oh, my God, he's screaming. And they and they actually had some of the people in the production go make up a tent for him with vinyl records and carpets and, and <laughs> nice seats. So that was all like very like 60s uh, retro, just so that he could have a place to go and decompress and, and understood that they mm-hmm. appreciated what he was doing and that it was like very, you know, not what he was expecting, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it, yeah, it's a different process. It changes everything. Yeah, right? it does. I think it's a whole bigger conversation than what we, what we even are talking about right now is just, I think the... Backing off of CGI is really what I want. I want to see the the way that Guillermo del Toro likes to deploy it. It's a way, or even Christopher Nolan likes to do it. It can accentuate an environment. It's not meant to build the environment, you know, like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it feels like maybe they, it wasn't like a money thing. It was like you said, it was a rush production. Maybe it was just like, and then we'll fill it in later. (laughs) You know, like that that. was, (laughs) that was the idea. And then it was like, oh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right. There was. So I think that's obviously a big sliding door, but what else would you guys have liked to have seen in any other capacity involving the Hobbit? Now the, now the, the board is wide open. (laughs) And kind of going off something you were saying earlier about how, uh, you know, Guillermo didn't really, he wasn't a big fan. I I like that because it, 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 to me, it rings very true to like Irving Kirchner and the empire strikes back. Mm. Cause he was like, you want to make a movie? And they're all just like, yes. Did you see the first one? He's like, yeah, I guess I'll watch it. And then, you know, like, like he just, he was, it was someone who didn't really care about it as much as he was just like, I want it to be good. And that was how he saw it. He was very objective based. And I feel like that would be an amazing advantage that Guillermo would have had. Although I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to see any version of the Hobbit live action before the Lord of the Rings because it would be like if you were doing like a series of like charcoal drawings and you were starting with a white canvas versus starting with a mid-tone canvas. Oh. Because the mid-tone then gives you all of the lighter colors as well as all of the darker colors and you can work your way from wherever you want. But if you start with just a plain white canvas, you have, okay, you can only go darker. And I feel like The Hobbit really benefit, well, it kind of benefited, but The Lord of the Rings itself was in the Tolkien's universe, that was the thing. So it only made sense that that would be the big thing that they worked their way up to. But sure. they did it across three movies, not across multiple series. And I thought that, that they lucked out. It was one of those like very circumstantial, yeah, we don't yeah, we don't have the rights to this. Let's just do this one. And I was like, okay, I guess they fell right into it. Whereas it just, it, it, I don't know. I'm just like in every different version of how does The Hobbit work if it came first? or if someone else made it, I think in every rendition, the source material will make a good product, but they'll all be so different. Yeah. <laughs> and that was probably also to go on what you were saying, Fred, is that you can't make a Hobbit made by the same person as made the first three movies 
actually be like an entirely different project. It was just not possible. And right. also not really Peter Jackson's fault because he no. went years thinking, oh, thank goodness I don't have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden that, then health problems, then, you know, pushing it back another yeah. year and all those things. And it, I don't know. What else would we would we want to change about it? I mean, it can be anything. You can reimagine anything. And that's why I, I kind of like the idea of, like, The Hobbit. Because, like, I think something else I even touched on before. Like, I would have loved to have seen an Ian Holm-led Hobbit movie. Like, it, but maybe in his, like, his younger years. Which, again, it's a whole problem of the time frames for this. And it's, like, whenever they were prepared to do something like this. Although, wasn't there a whole uh, thing... That I don't can't remember if we talked about this in the Lord of the Rings episodes where the Beatles wanted to make Return of the King. That was gonna yeah. be Kubrick was gonna do the Lord of the Rings and he wanted to cast the Beatles. Which is incredible. <laughs> like of all the ultimate unmade projects, <laughs> a Kubrick I he would have broken it. <laughs> but it, it would be Samwise because no one's given off Sam energy. Maybe Ringo, I guess. Oh, Ringo for sure. So it would be Ringo and Sam. Paul. Well, actually, no. Or is Ringo more? I, I think he wanted George Perfect. maybe to be Gollum or something. Maybe <laughs> that's who I would cast as Gollum. Yeah, <laughs> it's precious to me. <laughs> Ringo would be a surprisingly good Sam though, because in the Beatles he was the Sam of the Beatles. Right. <laughs> like, he was amazing. Like it was the it was the Peter Jackson documentary that I was just like, Ringo's amazing. What yeah. a great guy. He's always there. He's always friendly. Yeah, you guys are all- writing songs. Well, I wrote one too. <laughs> Not to beat on that. Will you will you do what I did? Yeah, right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Uh, John Lennon would have been the Pippin, right? Like he had to have been just, uh, <laughs> the fuck off or whatever. Like, oh, I'm, I'm off doing this now. <laughs> I have had a breakfast. What about second breakfast? Was <laughs> <laughs> Mary? But you know what? They would have been so broken by the first hour because it would have been Kubrick doing this movie. Yeah. Oh, and he would have had mm-hmm. Paul McCartney would have been had his. Uh, we would have been on the second Paul McCartney by that point, <laughs> playing Frodo in the two towers. <laughs> McCartney's all the way down. <laughs> it's the 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 fake Paul. <laughs> <It's> Frodo. <laughs> I um, but yeah, I I don't know. I I I try to think though of like a that time. And doing the Hobbit, like God, there'd been something fun in the eighties, right? Like mm. you get—I can't remember who directed the Never Ending Story, but just something that felt like that. That could, I would love that, you know. Mm-hmm. Or um, what's another like famous like eighties fantasy? The Warriors of Virtue. What? What is that? That's the one with like the kangaroo ninjas. <laughs> I love it. The specificity is beautiful. I love it. I have to watch a lot of movies when I go home. I really do. Start with Warriors of lost. Virtue. What about the unicorn? I will say, oh yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, you're right. I gotta start there. Because you want to hear those tasty America jams. I do, I do. I really do. I know they are, too. Oh my god. Um, I will say real quick. Doug I Jones in the Warriors of Virtue. <laughs> I believe it. He's probably the kangaroo. He needs someone tall. <laughs> but I would say, you know, Guillermo del Toro just released an extremely beautiful stop motion movie, the Pinocchio movie. Mm-hmm. I think that could be cool at this point. Just have him do like a stop motion 
like slightly darker but more children's focus with lots of music animated movie kind of do Rankin Bass but your own Rankin Bass yeah right mm-hmm. that could be a lot of fun actually that would be really neat because I and that was kind of to the point I even had before of like making like a CGI movie but actually I kind of love that even more of doing like that stop motion animation of Lord of the Rings because it does feel like that has sort of that that 60s 70s aesthetic to it mm-hmm. without necessarily being you know from that era it just i don't know yeah, stop motion comes with texture yes and i think the texture is what lord of the rings and the hobbit needs mm-hmm. so that that perfectly fits can i add a thing that i'd like to that i would change you sure can bayorn's cottage in the hobbit who is the guy bayorn the dude who can become a he's a changeling so oh yeah 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 okay that was like the best part of the book it was so detailed and it made you hungry, but you also like really respected Bayorn because he I feel in the movies. They kind of like skipped over him a little bit oh, where yeah. they're just like, he's a he's a victim. He's the last one alive. And he's just like, yeah, I know you've been I'm sorry to have been hunting you basically for a while recently. But I, <laughs> I, I just, you know, I don't trust people. And it was quite literally Gandalf the entire time playing this game because all of the dwarves were not in the house right away. They basically like went around back and he told them just because, you know, he doesn't really like dwarves. You don't want to freak him out. Come in, come in in twos and twos. Bomber, you're last. And Bomber's <laughs> like, what? And Bomber was a kind of a dick in the book all the time. The big one. He was always, a, he was always a jerk. And they're just like, oh, Bomber. And he's just like, I am sick of this. And so they're all just waiting and two at a time, every like five minutes or something, they would come in just so that Gandalf could be like, so this is where we're going, Bayard. Oh, hey, it's these two. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's just these two. And he's like, there's more. <laughs> okay. Anyway. And he'd still be entertained by whatever Gandalf was telling him. And as they're still talking, just another two would come and he'd just be like, what? no, 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 just keep listening to what we're talking about. And they kept trying to distract him. And by the time, and then Bomber just got got tired of it, and so he just went with another group. So there was three of them, and Baron's like, "Okay, what's happening?" And and, and he because Gandalf was like, "If he gets mad, he's gonna kill all of us because <laughs> he's gonna change into the monster." And so there was that like tension building, and that was not in the like they they kind of used up all the tension in the movie with, "Oh, get in, he's after us," you know. And it's like, "Get quick, get into his house. That'll be safe," you know. <laughs> I would have liked that because that you know that's a classic scene of some Gandalf bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yep. you know, Gandalf's yes. always on some bullshit. Yes, <laughs> and I just want someone to call him out. Like. Yep. Well, it's, it's one of those things that I love about Gandalf's that he, he, they, everyone says the elves are the only ones that are, will always report to the to the like the the hobbits of like remember, don't meddle in the wizard's business. They are subtle. And they're quick to anger. Mm. And that is very true. And by the subtlety, I think that that's exactly what it was. It's like, it's frustratingly subtle at times. It's yeah. like, are you just fucking with me, Gandalf? It's like, yes, but for good reason. And it's been 1,500 years in the making. Don't mess this up. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all he's thinking. So and I would love that. Don't call scene. him out. You know, because he gets mad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't. don't. <laughs> I am not a conjurer of cheap tricks. Stupidity. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just a lot of that. I would, I would like that. I would, I would change that, I think. Interesting. Yeah. Should we get into some of our favorite moments then from Mm -hmm. these movies? Sure. As our power Mm -hmm. rankings for the week. I'm just trying to build on the segue without necessarily putting a pin in that. But I I think this could be a very fun way to kind of get into it. Because I think you describing that, I'm like, that's a moment from that movie that I don't really recall. I don't even know that's in the Rankin Bass, to be honest. Is it? I think it is. No, the two two dwarves at a time oh. coming in. I think it is. 
I don't know. I was half paying attention today. I'm pretty <laughs> sure. I'm pretty sure at the Rankin Bass they do kind of that, like an expedited version. It's again. like it's like a part of the montage where they're singing. <laughs> it is half of that movie is, <laughs> and it's great. <laughs> it's and then the hobbits came and they left a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> the dwarves are a flurry. <laughs> Everything's a rhyme, but um, yeah. So what? are your favorite moments from the Hobbit, the story? And if you have a specific thing like from the live action movies or from the animated movie that you want to call out, please go for that. CJ, would you like to kick us off? Sure. Um, I always enjoy in any of the Tolkien movies, books, whatever it might be, the Shire Mm. bag end, Mm. whatever happens in Hobbiton or bag end or on the way from the Shire through like the Breland and all the other areas before you get to the obviously dark places and the obviously, you know, bureaucratic, uh, bureaucratically and politically complex areas. The Shire is just that perfect, very, very, very minutely worked out. Um, like the themes, the place, the people, everything is very, very well described in all of the books, in all of the movies, they take the time to say, yeah, we're talking about the, the pipe weed that they, yeah. we're talking, and we're going to talk about it a lot. We're going to talk like, there's a whole chapter on old Toby and uh, the, the, from the, the weed from the South farthing and all those things. They very much lay that out. And it's, it's just, it all does have an effect later on. And I feel like for the Hobbit, I'm a big fan of anything with the Shire because it just makes me feel comfortable and it somehow interests me in something that I never thought I would be interested in. Yeah. It it's not something that would grab me in any other context or any other time in my life. I feel like it's one of the very few things that the calmer it has all the calm the calmness of that appeals to me the more mature I get, I think. Yeah. And and it, it always gets better. It's kind of like the great British bake off tent. Yes. Isn't it? That's like Hobbit vibes. And I would love like a travel channel show about Hobbits and just like today we're going to Maggie's farm. She collects carrots. Yeah. She has a party today. (laughs) It is great that it's an actual location. Fred, did I tell my Hobbiton story on the Lord of the Rings episode? I think you at least talked about going. I don't know if there was like a specific thing that happened. <laughs> I'll tell you again, CJ. And for any listeners who maybe missed Lower of the Rings episode, I'll I'll re- relate it very quickly. Yeah. So I had the opportunity to go to New Zealand back in 2003 or 2004. Sure. So right after the trilogy wrapped. So Hobbiton is a real place in New Zealand now. Like they've kind of marked it where it's at. They have a big old sign that says, Welcome to Hobbiton. Mm-hmm. So our tour bus rolled up to this this city of Hobbiton or town of Hobbiton, if you will. We're like, we're going to see the sets. We're going to see all the, you know, where the hobbits, like the hovels and all that. You get to it and it kind of looks like when you get into the downtown there or whatever, where the Hobbiton sign is, Mm -hmm. it looks kind of like an old West town in like, you know, like Western U.S. Like you're you're in Deadwood, you know, it's like, it's like there's like little shops and stuff you can walk into. And so we're all like taking pictures in front of the sciences. Welcome to Hobbiton. Like everybody's taking their time, you know, throwing up the peace sign and all that. I was like, awesome. All right, let's go see this. And they're like, okay, back on the bus. I'm like, here we go. They're like, we're on to our next destination, Rotorua. And I'm going, excuse me. (laughs) Where's the set? They're like, oh, that's way off in the, down the way. We're not seeing that. I was like, we came to see a sign. 
I was furious. I was like, this was the one of the few, if not the only time in my life I'll ever be in New Zealand. I didn't even get to see the fucking set. I was so angry. Did you see pictures of what it looked like when you were there? I, I thought you were going to, you were building up to, and I got there. And there were no hobbits. <laughs> no, Fred. I didn't even know how to get in to see any hobbits. I didn't even get to see any hobbit houses. I didn't even get to yeah, see the the little pathway that Gandalf and Frodo are rolling through. Like, would have been just hills, though. I know, but well, they okay. didn't have. They didn't. They didn't leave it all. Listen, the the, the other half of what I <laughs> of being in New Zealand, and I mean, obviously, somewhere where the Hobbit was filmed. It's like, yeah, they filmed all over. You can see, like, everywhere you're going is part of the set, technically. So you've seen, like, the scenery, the rolling hills, and it is gorgeous. One of the most beautiful countries on Earth. But, like, I was just like, I wanted to see the sets that were left over. And they were fresh. I was like, oh, so angry. Well, I thought the best business to open in that area is, you know, you get a couple of drones, you get a couple of costumes, and this is the business. You come to my shop. I put you in Lord of the Rings garb, and then I just have you run through the wilderness. I'm a drone shoot you from above, and then I'm going to send you a cut of, like, Howard Shore score just pumping, (laughs) and you running in full costume across New Zealand. That's really awesome. I really, I very much like that. And also, I have a theory. The people who did the tour never actually met or talked to the landowner. Yeah. <laughs> so they could only go up to the sign and then they had to drive Probably. away. They took you for everything you had. I know. <laughs> Man. So sad. It was oh. so sad. But I digress. Either way. Good reason to go back or go to it for the mm-hmm. first time. If you guys mm-hmm. ever have interest, please continue with your ranking, CJ. As oh, I just right. <laughs> That's right. That's what we're doing. Oh, my gosh. I forgot about so that. No, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I love, I love the Shire. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love, uh, in terms of the, the book, Erebor itself and Dale, those were let that area to me was always very, uh, it, it's interesting because it's a set that is built in the book very well and very, it's, it's, it's somewhat ambiguous, but it's specific enough so that you can do with it as you need to, because in the Rankin Bass, it is one way, but it's similar to the way that it is in the Peter Jackson films. Right. But I would say that the best, like, uh, the best reference for that area for me is that it doesn't end at the Battle of Five Armies for me. So it has a lot of meaning because during the Lord of the Rings, there's a whole nother, much larger battle that happens there with with Dane and then Bard, King Bard of Dale at the time. And it's just one of those things where I like, I like any time that you go to a place that's like, this existed way back then and it's going to keep existing. This is just this part of it. Yeah. And so anything having to do with that area, the fields in front of Erebor and anything having to do with the Shire, I absolutely enjoyed. And also, I very much enjoy how the elves are completely different in every <laughs> I like that because it means that, OK, there is an area in which people don't creatively agree, but everyone has some kind of a take on it. And all of them are still accurate to the story, but they don't have to match. <laughs> and that kind of I feel like that that's very I, I enthusiastically accept that in because that just speaks to the creative possibilities of new versions in the future that nobody has to watch if they don't want to, but can exist. Yeah. And that's good because that's how we got them in the first place. It's true. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very good. I enjoy it a lot. Fred. 
I think my number one would be the behind-the-scenes footage of Benedict Cumberbatch doing the smog where he's, like, <laughs> on the ground and doing the face. That's probably my favorite Hobbit thing. Uh, no, I just remember watching that video. I'm like, he's, he's doing it. Uh-huh. I'll, I'll count that as one. Um, I really like the part in the Peter Jackson movie movies, the first one, where you do get like the that's what Bilbo Baggins ate song, but I do like when everything gets cleared up, they're all lighting their pipes, they're getting that nighttime drink, and and is it Thorin? Yep, he's gonna lay down a fucking song, yeah. and it's gonna be like like it's gonna be a song. It's yeah. gonna be soulful. I'm gonna tell you about some stuff. Mm-hmm. I love that, and that's what I thought I was gonna really love these movies. I thought it was gonna be kind of like. Almost that surreal, like Zack Snydery thing, where like now we're in like a weird music video, <laughs> like because that's the feel of like the first twenty minutes of that first movie, and it loses a little bit of that. Whereas like the Lord of the Rings trilogy kind of starts grabbing at that at the end with uh, Mary singing that song, kind of like these. Like I feel that's very like the Zack Snyder thing, which like the good thing. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. And then I'm trying to think. Oh. Th- of a story beat, I would say it's a tie between I love the riddles between Gollum and Bilbo. And like I said, the idea of sting. I just think that's just a cool kid logic thing. Then just like and it works in the later movies, just them unsheathing it and see that it's glowing uh, when in the Hobbit movies, uh, Gollum kills the orc that falls down with. Bilbo and he sees the sword go out. I think that's super cool. That's like really we're playing with the logic of the sword. Mm-hmm. And so those, those are my three parts. That's pretty good though. Yeah. I, go ahead. I hadn't thought about the sting part. I love that. that yeah. When it goes out, I was like, we haven't seen that before. We only ever see it go on. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's, and oh, man. yeah, I think that's one of the cool things. I could even probably look that as one of my moments though, too. I love that. I mean, just the the invention of, like, magical artifacts, because it's informed how many different things I can think. I can name 20 off the top of my head, but, you know, it's like I think of, like, Dungeons & Dragons. How critical is it to get an artifact in that game? The idea of, like, even in, like, the Final Fantasy games, it's like, oh, yes, you need this specific sword, like, that can do this. And they're always named after something that's kind of like a a nod to religion or something like that. And I also kind of love that in Lord of the Rings, like, Sting and, like, everything is very, like, built into this world. It's not referencing anything. You talked about it. Like, he's not referencing, like, Norse mythology, I think, is the closest thing you can see is, like, Mm -hmm. here's some inspiration for what we see. But... You know, with like Thorin and Thor, right? Like that's probably the closest relation you'll ever get. Uh, I actually knew a guy named Thorin in college. So. Really? <laughs> yeah, that's it was amazing. parents were huge uh, Hobbit fans. So nice. uh, <laughs> I know. So we yeah, we did call him Thor a lot, but um, <laughs> but I do I do just love like yeah the idea of like the One Ring and like that just everything about that whole thing because I think it's built such a, a lasting ideology around that whole like just mechanism or the the MacGuffin of sorts you know um I think too is I love the moment of Bard shooting the dragon specifically in the live action movie yes I I think that's the best way that Battle of Five Armies starts is like you get to start it right with Smog attacking with a lake town mm-hmm. and you get this like it starts on like this huge beat and like what a way to, to end Desolation of Smog right of like 
it's like, oh God, now he's going to get to Lake Town. And like, I could have done probably without a lot of the Legolas intervention, to be honest. That's maybe like my one other critique. I, I just didn't love how injected the elves were in all this. I did like they'd be cutting off mad heads in that last movie. Like, I just remember watching like so many baddings. Yeah. <laughs> At one point they're like, Legolas needs to catch up. Let's have him fly upside down. And they still all pull down a whole right. of them. But it's like, then you had the battle of five armies for these elves to fight. It's like, did we really need them involved in like this? Like, smog going after lake town like i i i think the i was most invested in that movie of like bard like trying to get this giant like you know crossbow to line it up and like he's like i gotta hit this one specific point and it was like his daddy failed at it right right so that's going through his mind yeah Yeah. and it's like what if what a completion of that arc i was like i love that part of the the story and even in like the Rankin bastards i think it's a very (laughs) A very abbreviated version of that. I like the epicness in in the Peter Jackson's vision of that one. Mm-hmm. I think just the last thing I'll add is I don't know. I I th- kind of love just Gandalf coming at the beginning <laughs> yeah. and just knocking on his door and being like, "Hey, you're in this party now. I don't know if you wanted to be, but it's gonna happen." And the fucking dwarves just start popping up and. And Rankin and Bass, there's something a little like unsettling about like, the way they just kind of slide up out of the bushes. And shit. But, but I, I do love that too, even in the beginning. I think you talked about it, Fred. It's like the, the Zack Snyder music video idea of just these, these dudes just kind of coming in and turning his world upside down. And I'm like, this is how you start a story. Like, don't, you don't need to spread this whole thing of like, oh yeah, I heard there's dwarves in town. Oh yeah, I saw this weird, strange wizard walking around or whatever. It's just like, mm-hmm. nope, Gandalf's right at his door. Hey! Wake up, motherfucker. We're going on adventures. I don't need Elijah Wood caked in makeup to look five years younger. Like, he just looks weird in, like, that beginning part. Yeah. Like, I didn't like them relying on that so much. Yeah. We gotta have Frodo in it. Yeah. I just like the way the actual, like, story starts, though. And I think the book, animated, whatever you want to say, just the way that it's, like, Bilbo is thrown into this for the first, like, two pages. It's like, we don't need to spend a whole time... And, like, yes, in the beginning of Lord of the Rings is great. You get the whole backstory of, like, there were rings forged in fire once upon a time. Kate Blanchett, you know, waxing poetic about this whole thing. But. Godfather theme plays. There <laughs> <laughs> yeah. are 20 rings, man. <laughs> Seven for the dwarves. That's really And true. nine. <laughs> I, like, I like to second, in terms of favorite moments, the taking like the the black arrow mm-hmm. being fired because right now because i have a, a two-year-old son theo i always cry oh. <laughs> the last two and a half years i always cry at that scene it was always emotional in the theater i always loved it but now it's like a boy yeah. <laughs> we're either gonna kill that dragon or we're gonna both die <laughs> and that's what we're doing today you know yeah. real it's real dad shit and it I love really it. it really is it's like the most hardcore, like, this is what I'm here for kind of a right, thing. And yeah. I've, I've always just, oh, I, I completely forgot about it. Yeah. To be honest, it's almost like a microcosm in my memory of that movie. Yeah, so. and it's it's always just so interesting because you I think coming into The Hobbit to begin with, and not, not to belabor more of this, this episode, we got to get wrapped this up, but <laughs> <laughs> I think it is interesting that you come into the last part of the story and you expect, like, Bilbo or one of the dwarves or Gandalf are going to be the ones to defeat Smog. It's like, yeah, 
It's a guy who had a lot of trauma. It's <laughs> like, I'm going to fucking end this thing. Like, mm-hmm. And it's like, but it, it was Bilbo who kind of gave him, tipped him off, right? He's like, let him know. Like, yep, there's a weakness right here, dude. <laughs> From your dad. Yeah, and in the book, he didn't, it was a it was a bird that told Bard. It was a thrush. Yeah. <laughs> the one that the, knocks. Yeah, the one that knocks. Comes by and gets on his on his uh, on his shoulder while he's aiming. So in the Rankin Bass, it's Bilbo who tells the thrush, who then goes and tells Bard. Oh, but is that how it actually happened in the book? In the book, I don't. I know that Bilbo saw it and he basically confirmed it. And I think that the thrush might have been there to hear it, or the thrush was informed by the Raven, because uh-huh. there was a Raven who was like the king. Of the because there's Ravenhill and it's like a balding Raven who's like 109 years old or something and barely remembered like that the dwarves were there but the but in Tolkien crows are dicks but ravens are great <laughs> and so the ravens can actually speak and that's I love it because it's right at the end of the, that they're just like um oh yeah the ra- the ravens like oh it's been so good and all the dwarves are like ah the raven and the and Bilbo's like what is the bird the bird talking <laughs> and, and 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 the and the the the, the raven I think tells the thrush or it's some like the rush the thrush also gets that info and flies and it's just like because in the book it's just like i thought i saw it die i'm sure i saw it die and we learn way later that it that bard's like i killed it or everyone it's like a rumor which is a much better way of slowly introducing uh that information better than at the beginning of the movie as you were saying right that was great because they included those elements in a much more appropriate and natural style but i thought it was cool it was the bird that would have been kind of dope to see the beginning of the hobbit like if you're going to make a live action movie and seeing like the first attempt to try and slay smog and like that, at like time that kind of, you just leave that as like a simmering memory of like, as you're kind of going through the movie, like, what was that about? You have Luke Evans, but he's got like a mole here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I just watched backdraft and they do that for, um, they do it for Kurt Russell. He plays his dad. And I'm like, it just is Kurt Russell. How come he doesn't look like Adam Baldwin at all? (laughs) I forgot about that. That's outstanding. Oh, my God. That's definitely his dad. He's more confident. (laughs) Oh, gosh. All right. Well, I think that gets us to the end of our episode here, guys. Backdraft. I love the backdraft. I saw it for the first time. It owns. It's a great movie. My parents had it on VHS. (laughs) Unbelievable. CJ, we really appreciate you being on. But before we let you go, is there anything you would like to plug? Should I plug? Oh my goodness! There's a lot of different things that I would like to plug. Let's do let's do the the obvious ones. The Interchange Theater Co-op downtown in Milwaukee, uh, right on Marquette's campus at the um, uh, Calvary Presbyterian Church. It's in the basement, but the basement has 16 foot ceilings. So by all means. Come there and see a show because we do amazing long-form improv. I am the corporate education director there, so I run all of our traveling shows, curate those, curate our uh, uh, specialist workshops and things for corporations and businesses. Um, And we also have a number of classes that are going on right now. As a matter of fact, I'm about to start the second session of musical improv. I have a musical improv intensive that's a four-week intensive that's going on. And at the end of the intensive, you perform two shows, actually, with with an audience. So you get to headline on Friday and then open on Saturday for another bigger group. So that's always super fun. Um, I would also plug my, uh, uh, I'm, I'm also a musician, so I do a lot of things under the name The Siege Machine, one word, The Siege Machine, and uh, I actually am getting to the point where I'm about to release an album of video game music from a game called uh, The Adventurer's Repose, which oh, is okay. a free game that you can play online where you basically, uh, it was made by a friend of mine, Preston, in Australia, and he does a, um, 
Uh, it's basically a game where it's a magic tavern. So all these magical creatures are coming through and, and, and you wait their tables for them. And <laughs> I am the band. Oh, <laughs> so nice. if you're in the game, all the songs, all the music, that's all myself. And then the instrumentation is Kevin McLeod. And I did the arrangements and wrote all the songs and sang them all. And, and I'm now just making sure that they're all as perfectly mastered as I can. And they're very taverny and pub like music. They, they actually, more than a few of them would fit in the Shire, quite honestly. Oh, that's and I'm very, I'm very excited about that because it's that and the interludes in between, but that, what, what the band says, you know, like if you could please, um, you know, if, if, if someone owns uh two oxen, big brown <laughs> fur, please report to the bar staff, a dragon, has taken your livestock. <laughs> uh, like that kind of a thing. And then the songs, I just, uh, they're fantastic. And so that's going to be released soon. So keep an eye out uh, for that on the Siege Machine on Spotify or wherever you listen to music. Um, that's pretty much, those are the big ones. Sounds great. What was the name of the game again? That is The Adventurer's Repose. Revenge's I would Repose. very much like to re- rename it, but that's okay. <laughs> it's like the Magic Tavern game. I will be sure to share it with the two of you. Yeah, yeah. any lore, sort of links or anything you want to send to us, you yes. know, we will promote. I, yeah. I will send you those. And it's free. So you can just enjoy that for free, and then the music will be out and available for everyone. So awesome. thank you so much. And I had an absolute blast. This was very nice to be able to talk about this. And in the format that you guys have, I very much appreciate that because we were able to go through everything that we liked, the things that we didn't necessarily like, all of the things that really make for a good conversation about such a massive undertaking as to talk about anything Tolkien. Yeah, I know, for sure. <laughs> yeah, we left probably a lot undiscussed, but I don't feel that way. No. no. So I feel good about it. And it was great. I think we set a new record for our time. <laughs> Which, but that's okay, because I feel like this was sort of, uh, in a way, not a redo, but I think it was an extension and where we really got to dive into Tolkien. Had somebody who was really great with UCJ to offer so much information, too, on just the story and the insights and the love for it, because that's what makes this franchise podcast go round. Thank you. Fred, anything you want to plug before we go? No, I think I'm just going to let you plug the podcast. You know, I think that's what uh, we've been working on recently. Yeah. Uh, we've got some stuff coming up that's exciting. We do. We do indeed. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Threads. We are State of the Franchise with Fred and Tom. And you can also find our link tree in the description of this episode. You can find all of our resources, email, state of the franchise podcast at gmail.com. Also, we have a tip jar on there. If you want to leave us a donation to help us keep the show going, that would be appreciated. But really, it's your listens that matter the most to us. And uh, it's it's uh, everything that we do here that I think that, that keeps us coming back and having awesome conversations about The Hobbit and Tolkien and talking with awesome people like CJ. So thank you so much again for being here, CJ. And thank you all for listening. And we will see you next time where we'll be discussing the best movies of 2023. Should be a great one. We'll see you then. Goodbye. (laughs) 